VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's produced the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, so a bit of snow on the ground. I mean, a centimeter, I think, fell overnight, but it is pretty slippery, I guarantee you that. You know, the most popular boot that you see around St. John's is, of course, people wearing the Blundstones. They're absolutely garbage in the slippery conditions. That much I have proven to myself time and time again. Lots of weather warnings in play. Freezing rain, lots of wind, lots of rain on the southwest coast. Maybe 60, 70 millimeters of rain today, possibly so. Anyway, watch your bobber. Uh, the Newfoundland Growlers came up short in Utah last night a four-win loss to the Grizzlies still looking for their second road winner of the season and how about that new hook kid he played great last night so I don't sleep very well when I woke up I did flick on the game for a little while so Newhook with his fifth and his sixth goals of the season including the game winner with about three minutes remaining I'll add to what Brian Medor said in the VOCM newscast he was also first star of the game last night really played great and boy that kid has jets he has speed to burn okay a couple interesting notes so, of course, November 22nd, 1963, John, Kennedy, John F. Kennedy Jr. was assassinated, and someone sent along a picture of the front page of the Daily News, of course, produced in this city, back on this date 60 years ago, and the headline says, Kennedy is assassinated. President is killed by sniper's bullet, and still lots of stories surrounding that particular event. And today in the United States, and good morning, and thanks for tuning in to all of our American friends who are living in the province or tuned in from elsewhere, Thanksgiving, which is a huge deal in the United States states it's right there with christmas it's the busiest travel day of the year in the united states of america so good morning to them and happy thanksgiving in addition to that, I read a story in Bloomberg this morning regarding Thanksgiving and the amount of food that will be prepared and eventually thrown out. They talk about the fact that some 312 million pounds of uh, food will make its way to the garbage today in the United States, which brings us to this country. So we all know the stories, and it's hard to hear and it's hard to watch about the millions of Canadians who are fully reliant on food banks. And then we just should be incorporating food waste facts. Every year, Canadians throw away enough good food to fit, uh, feed over 22 million people. 58% of food produced uh, for Canadians is wasted. 11 million tons of avoidable food waste. That means waste food that is absolutely edible. And, of course, when you talk about greenhouse gas emissions as, as it relates to food waste, 124.5 billion pounds of greenhouse gas is created annually from wasted food. That's the same as about 17.3 million cars. So food wastage uh, issues are big in this country. And I I suppose we can extend to that the difference between best before and expired dates on your food products okay yesterday november 22nd was also national housing day you know homelessness is not anything new it's just not but it's amazing to me how the presence of tents on confederation hill has really changed the focus on homelessness in this province there is growing sentiment out there that maybe government officials municipally provincially and possibly even federally just don't get the urgency of the situation so with the snow on the ground this morning doesn't seem like a whole whole lot is changing i know you can't flip switches and all of a sudden have minimum standards oversight and monitoring in an emergency shelter you can't just flip a switch and overnight have all the new homes constructed that are required in this province. So we're hoping to speak to the Canadian Home Builders Association here on the program this morning. 
as much as there's different pots of money and tax breaks out there for the construction of new homes or apartments, rental units, affordable units or otherwise, there's still going to be massive hurdles that have to be overcome regarding the timing of identifying a piece of land, uh, engineering, design and permitting and construction. It can take far too long. So the situation is urgent today. So we're probably, well, we're hoping to speak with uh, Alexis Foster of the Canadian Home Builders Association. They are talking about exactly that. And then you hear the discussions about market housing and non-market housing and money for community groups and private developers. The price of building a home is the price of building a home. There is no difference depending on who builds it. It's all about government subsidies and how they're availed of. So while there has been massive pots of money put out there, we are, we're not going to be anywhere close to building the number of units required in the short term. So the price of the home is the price of the home, but the subsidies, will they make a difference? Will anything happen quick as we, as quick as we need it, given some of the timelines for permits and what have you? So we'll see if we can uh, chase that down here this morning. Also, you know, one of the ones, someone asked me to dig in a little further on the issue broached in the fall economic statement regarding the Canada Mortgage Charter. The person that sent uh, an email overnight said that I pretty much dismissed its importance. I didn't think I did. But the issue with the Canada Mortgage Charter, and it could absolutely be beneficial for mortgage holders and those about to renew their mortgage, the major problem with it is there's no legislation associated with it. And there is no plan to enshrine into law the Canada Mortgage Charter. It's basically rules and expectations. So talking about uh, expanding on what they call the guideline on existing consumer mortgage loans in exceptional circumstances, and folks who have been identified as vulnerable borrowers. There's no real firm definition definition of that necessarily. So they say, the again, a guideline, is a consumer at risk, someone with an existing residential mortgage loan on their principal residence who is experiencing severe financial stress. What does that mean? I guess that's a floating target. And as a result of exceptional circumstances, pardon me, is at risk of mortgage default. Here's what's in this Canada Mortgage Charter, and there's six guidelines, and they're just that. Number one, to allow temporary extensions on the amortization period for mortgage holders. Number two, waive fees and costs that would otherwise been charged for mortgage relief measures. Number three, exempt insured mortgage holders from requalifying under the stress test when switching lenders at the time of mortgage renewal. That's pretty important. Number four, require banks to reach out to homeowners four to six months in advance of their mortgage renewal to inform them of their affordability options, the opportunity to get out in front of it and see where you stand, uh, the ability to negotiate with your lender on the mortgage renewal. Number five, allow borrowers to make lump sum payments to avoid negative amortization or sell their principal residence without incurring prepayment penalties. Number six, to waive interest on, uh, when mortgage relief measures result in mortgage payments that fail to cover interest payments on the loan. Not all these rules are new. There are some expansions inside this mortgage charter, but again, if it's not enshrined into law, it's basically a uh, allowing financial institutions more latitude in dealing with their borrowers. We hear repeatedly about the number of mortgage holders who are in a vulnerable position, and it's absolutely obvious. When you see 10 straight uh, consecutive rate hikes coming from the Bank of Canada on their benchmark interest uh, rate, 
But here's some of the data that has been collected by the Canadian Bankers Association. So when we talk about mortgage in arrears, hasn't been paid for at least three months. According to the Canadian Bankers Association, there is over 5 million mortgages in Canada as of September the 30th, 2023. 0.16% or 8,140 were in arrears. That number may indeed grow, but it is not the type of commentary we hear from certain sides of the political aisle. So the percentage is up from 0.14% in August of 2022, which was the lowest percentage of arrears since January 1995, where it was 0.50% in arrears. So over 5 million mortgages and obviously a massive big deal for us mortgage holders when we go in to renew. Inside all the top line numbers that we've talked about yesterday on the program in the fall fiscal update or the economic statement, you know, with $20.8 billion in new spending over the next six years, a forecasted $40 billion deficit, very limited economic growth predicted in this country. The federal debt, which of course has gone from about $620 million when the Liberals took over in 2015 to $1.2 trillion. So we've got those numbers out there. Debt servicing to me jumps off the page. So to service the country's debt this year is going to cost over $46.5 billion. That's in and around the same amount that will come for uh, in the form of health care transfers from the federal government to the provinces and territories. So we've talked about those, those numbers, and we're happy to get them back out there. Some of the policies and programs that can save people some money are interesting. I say that because not all of them are actually coming to pass yet. There are proposals for potential savings. So there's amendments to the Competition Act. More parties are able to take their concern to the Competition Tribunal. Not really clear exactly what that means. They're talking about equitable trade. So to make sure when Canada opens market access to their trade partners, that Canadian companies are given the same treatment abroad. Easy enough to say it, hard to enforce it. But there are a couple of things that I think can indeed be helpful. So, again, this is just a plan to introduce this in the future. The Government of Canada is talking about amending the air passenger protection regulations to make sure that children under the age of 14 can sit with the company parent free of charge. Hmm. Asking the CRTC to examine international roaming charges. Okay. Here's one that I think when we acknowledge the fact that there's a mental health... Again, probably uh, a real proper label is a crisis in the country. So they are removing federal taxes on psychotherapy and counseling. So that means that GST, HST will do, uh, be removed from professional services, making access to therapists more affordable, and that's probably a very important move. In this province, when we got the most recent unemployment numbers, the unemployment rate had ticked down. So, of course, good news. Now, it doesn't necessarily always include the number of people that have left the, the labor market, but the numbers were encouraging. What they also included was a trigger to the difference in em employment insurance benefits. So there was going to be the thought that if you were in a seasonal industry, tourism, and notably the fishery, that with the new changes, they were, people were going to be without four weeks of employment insurance coverage, you know, between, say, for instance, when it runs out and the proposed beginning of the snow crab season, for instance. Now that has been reinstated. Those four weeks are now back on the table. It's going to cost the federal government about $41.1 million over six years and 12.6 every year thereafter. But for folks who were deathly worried about that lack of a four-week coverage, that has been reinstated. So a couple of good things along with a bevy of really concerning things coming from the economic update. Okay. 
So here in St. John's, this uh, today and tomorrow is the 19th Canada-EU Leader Summit. All right, so the Prime Minister is in town. The European Council President is Charles Michel in town. The President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is also in the city today. So there's a pretty wide, broad agenda. They're talking about, you know, some things are really quite vague. Job creation, how that partnership works between this country and the European Union regarding job creation, we'll see what comes out of it. Job creation, talking about the loss of biodiversity, innovation, tech, research, building the middle class. Again, who's in the middle class? I'll leave that up to you because I have no idea who's in the middle class anymore. Then notably, of course, clean energy. So there's not a lot of talk all of a sudden about the wind, hydrogen, ammonia proposals. Of course, there's been lots of conversation on the Port of Port Peninsula and the Southwest Coast Alliance has now expanded their uh, concern and their branding to protect NL. So there's going to be lots of talk about clean energy. Lots of talk about human rights, protection and promotion of democracy and inside the world of trade. Not formally on the agenda, but many people in this province are only hoping that Canada broaches some of the restrictions regarding seal export products to the European Union because of course we've had that conversation it might be dead in the water but it's worth putting back on the front burner some of the decisions made even by the World Trade Council about banning seal import has been flimsy to say the very least so folks in this province I'm sure would like to see that included I don't think we're going to get a chance to speak with either of the aforementioned leaders even though they're welcome to join us on the program because we got questions all right. And on that front, too, you know, there's Grieg and their aquaculture project on a Placentia Bay has looked like it's been really successful for their first commercial harvest. It's been on the go for a few weeks. Their product has been delivered to Quinlan's operations in Bay de Verde. So $16 million uh, invested in the plant for this type of processing. But Six million of that is from the Atlantic Fisheries Fund. So I suppose the Quinlans were lucky enough through the application process to be able to get those types of dollars. And again, remember, that's a $400 million pot of money to be spent over the course of seven years. The most recent announcement was $25 million uh, to cover 147 different projects. Quinlans were able to avail of six million of it. You want to take that on? We're happy to do it. Also, with this 5,000 tons of salmon this go-around, they're talking about tripling it over the next couple of years. So the aquaculture conversation, it's remarkable how different the conversation sounds on the east coast of Canada versus the west coast of Canada. Add to that the difference in the way the commercial fishery is adjudicated and executed here on the east coast versus the west coast, but the apparently the... Uh, salmon are uh, disease-free, sea lice-free. They're as big as dogs, that much I can tell you when I saw the pictures of some of the salmon being pumped out and onto the new processing line out in Bay de Verde. You want to tackle it? Let's do exactly that. I might be one of the few who thinks about and talks about the issue regarding the ongoing negotiations that were announced back in February between this province and the province of Quebec regarding the Upper Churchill and the consequences associated with 2041 and the expiration of the contract. The equity stake doesn't go away. That's where I think the government could do us all a real distinct favor, not to show their cards regarding every word uttered in the negotiations, but we struck a 2041 committee to look at what the implications of that contract will be in 2041. So 
people are thinking all of a sudden we are able to yank all of the power that flows from the 5,428 megawatts at the upper Churchill, 90% of it goes to Hydro-Quebec. Their equity stake remains. It's simply an opportunity to renegotiate price, which I assume is uh, ongoing at this moment in time. But again, when we talk about developments at the upper Churchill and the potential for more developments on the Churchill River, when the Innu Nation is asked about their knowledge or understanding of these negotiations, they don't know anything. They're not involved. The Premier says they'll be brought in at the appropriate time. When appropriate time arrives, who knows? Again, another floating target. But important to remember that the Innu Nation, when the last wave of so-called rate mitigation was discussed and settled, that $5.2 billion, and that was you know, some of the Hibernia money and another extension of the federal loan guarantee and another billion-dollar loan from the federal government, that meant that the Indonesian was going to be out a couple of billion dollars, and they are not going to move forward with any potential further development on the river until that is settled. There's also a couple of court cases in play at this very moment in time, suing Hydro-Quebec over the flooding of the Smallwood Reservoir at the Upper Churchill. So there's still a lot of stuff to yet to be uh, considered when we talk about what 2041 means, because the Indonesian, they're not going to budge until the redress for that last rate mitigation, which sees them out. I think it was one billion or two billion. I shouldn't be able to you know, throw around billions without being accurate, but I'll, I'll get that number. It just popped in my head as we were discussing or I was talking here this morning. So anyway, there you go. Uh, how are we doing on the phone this morning there, David? Let's get it going. Bad throat. All right. What do we do about these stories? So yet another headline where someone's pulled over, no license, no insurance, $44,000 in outstanding fines. You know, they're not necessarily all related to traffic violations, but how many millions of dollars are out there in unpaid fines? You know, some of them could be with contraband tobacco or the uh, people not paying their child support and or traffic violations. There are a variety of things that add up into those big numbers, but $44,000, what's the likelihood of getting any of that from this 37-year-old pulled over in the ghouls last night? I'll tell you, none. Anyway, uh, another qu uh, quick one before we get back to your call. Heard Linda Swain talking about the explosion, the car explosion on the Rainbow Bridge, Niagara Falls connection or border crossing. They say, you know, no evidence of uh, terrorism at play. But if you've seen the pictures and the moving video, it was an extraordinary explosion. There was literally nothing left of the car. It was absolutely blown to smithereens. And last one on the federal front before we get back and speak with you. So we talked last week about the fact that a former RCMP intelligence officer was being charged with six uh, charges in front of uh, that particular person. His name is Cameron Ortiz. So this was all under the uh, Security of Information Act. He's been found guilty on all six charges. So the Crown is looking for punishment up to 20 years, and it's the first time that anything regarding the Security Act, Security of Information Act has been tested in court, and Mr. Ortiz found guilty on all six charges. The defense are talking about the fact that he had to defend himself with one hand behind his back because of the lack of the ability to provide all of the evidence to the jury. So there were some 500 pages of evidence, and some, of course, had to be redacted because of national security. But he's been found guilty of sharing information with some of our enemies, Mr. Ortiz, facing some serious prison time. All right, we're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning, sir. Hi. Is this Patty? This is me. Hi. Uh, my name is Ron. Uh, I'm calling for Cowhead, Newfoundland. Okay. Anyway, uh, I've got a little bit of issue with an oil tank here. 
What's the problem? Uh, well, let. Last year, I had a steel tank, and uh, it was getting rusty. So it was the date on the expiry was the 23rd of of the uh, end of October this year. So anyway, I went and bought an oil tank, uh, a used one, and went to pour the bass to actually get it because it was fiberglass and fiberglass usually lasts a lot longer than steel where I'm close to the salt water here. So anyway, last year I had that oil tank put in. Uh, I called my oil supplier and gave him the tag number that was on the tank, uh, which was an expiry date of 2066, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, this year I noticed that my tank was getting low and it was on automatic fill-up but I wasn't getting no oil. So I called my oil company and they said, well, that's a used tank you've got to install. So we can't put oil in it. So he tells me then, so get a recertification done. I got a recertification done. And yesterday, a uh, guy came in and put a new tag on it. It's still good for 40 something years. And, uh, Anyway, they called me up, and I called the oil company to get me some oil after they telling me to get the tank recertified, which I did. Uh, he said, no, we can't give you any oil. You've got a uh, crampy tank that's really no good. So first off, when you bought this new fiberglass tank, you didn't know that it was used? I knew it was used, okay. but I I didn't know it was illegal to buy. Like Western Petroleum got a monopoly here on the coast. They came, they put all of my tank all last year, right? And now suddenly, oh, we can't put oil on that. And I called them up, and he said, "Well, if you can get someone to recertify that tank, we can come put oil in it." So I called him up yesterday and said, I got a recertification done. And he says, well, that inspector wasn't supposed to do that. And I can't get oil. It's unfortunate that some companies just make things difficult, right? So if you call them and they say you needed to be recertified, it'd be pretty helpful if they said, here's how the process works for us to be able to deliver oil to you. Here are the inspectors that we use, and here's a couple of contact numbers, so that when you go through the process, you know what you're getting yourself into, and Western Petroleum gets you back as a customer. So I don't know why things are so gray and muddy all the time. Yeah, well, like you say, uh, apparently the... As soon as this guy inspected my tank, he ended up calling him and saying that he wasn't supposed to do it. Now, everything is fine with him. Like, I figured I had, I had a new tank, and I was getting ready to go buy another one, and I called the guy that installs the tanks in this area, or did install the tanks in this area, and he said I had to give it up because it's too expensive. He said I got to charge thirty-two hundred dollars for a tank, a steel tank, which is probably going to only last about twenty years. This one out here is good for forty, over forty, and I have to go pay another thirty-two hundred bucks for a tank. It's probably going to last about fifteen years because I'm only about 
100 feet from salt water. So, Ron, now that we are where we are, what is Western Petroleum saying you need to do? You need to just buy an, another tank, period? Yeah, they're saying this tank is no good. We can't. They, they say if we fill up that tank and anything happens, we're liable for a spill. And I can't, I can't see uh, an oil company being responsible for a, to fill up a tank that is actually an inspector says it's good to go. Uh, anyway, I don't know. The Worcester Petroleum, I imagine, got tanks in Corner Brook. Is the tankers that comes in responsible if they have a leak? I'm not, I'm not sure where the liability lies. One thing I do know is if there's a spill of home heating fuels on your property, a spoonful could cost you thousands of dollars to clean up. So it is a real issue. Yeah, I know. But like you say, this tank is fiberglass. It's not supposed to leak. It's not like it's going to rust or anything. And there's no lines coming out from the bottom of it. It's, everything is top fill now. I tell you what, Ron, there's a caller uh, just uh, called in, wants to reply to you. He works in this industry. So when we say goodbye, stay tuned to the show. See if we can get some help and information from a gentleman named Robert on line number two. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's do that, Ron. Uh, good luck and stay tuned. Okay. Here we go. Uh, That's always helpful. The callers do this. Line number two, Robert, you're on the air. Hello, Patty, Robert. How are you doing, sir? Excellent, thank you. How about you? Good, good. Uh, look, really appreciate everything that you and VOCM do for the public because it's a great source of real-time information to people. So your caller that just called in, I work in the heat pump industry, and believe me, uh, there's an awful lot of confusion out there regarding with these grant programs and so on. I don't think the government could have done a worse job of public education in this world if they had tried. I mean, they really do need to do... Uh, a lot better job of informing the public about what the do's and what the don'ts are. And uh, if you go about this the wrong way, you can end up in this situation where this gentleman in. Now, first of all, I'd like to address that. And I do believe that the right approach is for him to call, contact the Department of Environment and Lands. So what we've been told is they're the ones that can allow you to resell, reuse, or repurpose a tank. So you have to have your host tag pictures and pictures of the manufacturing date and probably pictures of the tank and email somebody in that department and there should be somebody there that get back to you to tell you what the process is and what, what can be done with what tank. So I think that might give him some clear direction as to the course that he wants to go. Okay, that's helpful. I mean, when it comes to liabilities, there will be relationships between the provider, distributor, and the eventual end customer. And of course, the provincial department will be the person or the entity putting all the rules in place, period. So that's good advice. Yes, and, you know, as far as, you know, one person telling you this, another person telling you that, you know, when I do heat pump assessments for homes, one of the first things I tell the homeowner is, you have to do your home your homework. You've got to do your research. The programs are complicated. They're very involved. I mean, I sat down with a lawyer um, that got a law degree, and then she was telling me she can't sort them out. So, I mean, here you are talking about an individual who's intelligent, educated, and aware, and reading legislative documentation for interpretation every day of their life, and they can't sort out a, uh, a grant program. So, you 
you can appreciate the fact that, as you've seen and heard from many of your callers, that this program, these programs are complicated. One program, you got to do this. Another one, you don't. One program is income sensitive. The other program is not. You know, one program got 0% financing. Another one got at the current rates. So sometimes you got to be involved in both programs to get both benefits. One requires an energy audit. One doesn't. That's right. There's there's a bunch of different, a whole bunch of different moving parts here. So, you know, my best advice, I think, to the public is get online, do what you got to do, print off, sit back, read it, digest it. And, you know, you can always call any one of the longtime service reputable heat pump industry companies in the marketplace for some guidance to fill in the blanks. That's what I tell my customers. I give them my business card. I said, here's my cell phone number. You call me anytime. Look, there's a, a number here. You can reach out for a little bit of help but when you get a customer that expects an individual any i don't care who it is when you want one individual to explain the whole process to you well first of all i don't think anybody in the normal day got enough time to time to do that and explain all the grants and all the moving parts so get online do a bit of research and then get a reputable trustworthy person that's been in the industry for a number of years to give you some clear straight guidance as to which way to go and help you find out some of those answers that might be a little more convoluted in in what the end real end answer should be yeah because you know frankly i mean i've actually phoned up the federal greener homes program and spoke to representatives and they've given me the wrong answer over the phone i hung up the phone and said i know that answer is wrong because of my you know, 25 years experience in a real estate business. So you do really have to have uh, a good working or grip, at least, uh, on the beginning of it so that you can get some guidance and, you know, talk to, don't be afraid to talk to two or three different people. A hundred percent. I mean, that's the advice I try to give is, you know, talk to one of these, uh, manuf- not, not, pardon me, not manufacturer, but the companies that sell and install these units. They know the programs. And then in, in addition to that, make sure before you make any moves, when you get the guidance from that company, call your insurance company to make sure you're on the right track. Because people thinking that mini split as a primary source of heat will get them home insurance coverage, and it won't. And you mentioned the Canada Greener Homes Grant. There's, there's a lot of reasons why people go to that, you know, to try to make their home more energy efficient. I think it's also very attractive to people because you can get a, uh, an interest-free loan for up to $40,000 for those types of uh, retrofits in your home. Then you'd look Correct. at the complexity of the $157 million move from oil to electric, which is not income-tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you look about Correct. the central heat pump uh, program announced yeah. by the federal government, which is indeed income-tested. So you're right. It's confusing. I've done my level best to try to understand these different programs, but there's a lot of them. The most important thing on top of your suggestion, which I think is a bang on, and a phone your insurance companies, many of these programs can be used at the same time. You can double up on some of these subsidies coming from the government to make your home more energy efficient. And it's not all about moving away from a well. Some of it's simply upgrading insulation and windows and doors and the, the like and the shingles, what have you. So absolutely, your advice is ex- exactly what people should do. Talk to someone who knows the programs. These companies that sell and install, it's their job. They will walk you through it free of charge to make sure you're on the right track and whether or not you need a home inspection or an energy audit first and the availability of electricians and uh, installers because some of these programs last for years and the reason why is because we don't even have enough tradespeople to do all the work that's forecasted to be done because of the lucrative incentives uh, offered by different levels of government. 
Absolutely good comment. And if I can add anything else, I urge people when you get involved in this process, it's a time consuming process from the very time that you first have um, uh, make your first step towards uh, getting off oil or adding mini splits or putting in a central heat pump system. The time frame applying for the loans and getting the energy advisor in to do this, the audit can be three months and more. So, you know, it's be patient. The entire heat pump industry is struggling just to keep up with the demand that's been caused by this, uh, by these, by these additions of these federal and provincial funded programs and grants and energy initiatives and incentives to urge people to make their homes more efficient. Some people feel that they got to get rid of their oil in order to get a grant. That's not necessarily true. If you nope. go through the federal greener homes program, exactly. you don't need to get rid of oil. So there's there's Lots to put it this way. There's something out there, I believe, for everybody interested in updating their heating system to a more modern approach and a more affordable approach and a more energy efficient approach. So I really believe that, you know, some these programs are, are good in, in, in the basis of it, but you do need some guidance. They're very tangly. They're very complicated. There's a process you've got to go through step by step or you can disqualify yourself. You can end up like the gentleman who just called with a fiberglass tank that's good till, what did he say, 2044 or 2066, something? I think he says. 2066, and you know, you can't put oil in it, so what are we supposed to do now? Throw that in the trash? In the, I mean, this is a program that's supposed to, you know, reduce energy consumption, reduce carbon footprints and so on, yet we're going to throw a perfectly good tank that was one day good till 2066 and the next day is good for the garbage? Yeah, that's so right. There needs to be a whole reworking in some areas of these grant programs. The government needs to take a second look at this and have a clear path so that individuals like your last caller don't end up with hundreds or thousands of dollars worth of investment now and still don't have an oil tank and still can't get oil in his house and here's a winter freeze and next thing you know if it's on a primary heat source, his pipes are busted. Yeah, that's right. And so, there's a difference in the know. programs, too. What's a rebate, uh, like the Canada Greener Homes is a rebate program, versus the $157 million the province put forward, you can actually have the uh, people who do the work for you, direct bill, take charge on L. So there's a big difference that you have to understand, too, whether or not it's cash on the barrel head or direct billing to government where you don't come out of pocket for the entirety waiting for rebate. So I'll put that in there as well. Uh, Robert, I'm glad you called the show this morning. Thanks a lot. Well, you're very welcome, and uh, like I said, I work in the heat pump industry. Our company advertises on your uh, VOCM there all the time, so uh, if somebody wants to call Heat Pump Solutions, I'm sure we'll find somebody to help them guide through the process. We appreciate your time and the support on the air. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. You're doing a great job. Thanks, Robert. Appreciate that. Thank Take you. care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. Quick question from an emailer regarding the EI benefits and this, the additional four weeks that has come, has come because of the fall economic statement. The question is, how come that's not afforded to people who live in St. John's, for instance, who are seasonal workers, maybe working in tourism or whatever the case may be? The extension of the EI benefits was afforded to 13 economic zones in the country, including this province. There are different economic zones inside our own province. When you look at unemployment rates in the metro area versus parts of rural Newfoundland and Labrador, they're vastly different, right? So that's where the carve-out comes. So there was only 13 zones in the entire country that saw this extension, and so that's where we are. 
are and that's the answer to that question is basically this area on the northeastern Avalon Peninsula is not part of the economic zone that was targeted with this EI issue let's go ahead and take a break when we come back time for you don't go away Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Ken. You're on the air. Hey, how are you doing? Good, okay. How about you? Good. What's on your mind? Uh, well, I was just called by your, your show. Uh, I had to left a message, an email with them about the rally on uh, the West Coast on the weekend on Saturday from 2... To four o'clock for the windmills and this is a rally in support of this is a rally in support of not against so of course we've heard a lot of uh, folks opposed to the project you know for people who are in favor of is it all simply about the potential economic shot in the arm regarding these proposals or what's your position on this well, I think that for one thing, it's going to be an economic boom for the West Coast and Newfoundland itself and Atlantic Canada, probably Canada as well. Not only that, though, we're, we're, they're going to be producing a product that's going to be zero emissions when used in vehicles. And now, like, the the world is changing. Uh, we see uh, hydrogen cars, and they're, they're trying with uh, hydrogen trucks and uh, tankers and everything else now, even with the airplanes, right? The, so the end use is one thing, but of course, when we talk about creating energy, when it's not used in close proximity to the source, then we've still got a big issue. I'm not 100% sure that the appetite and the price point for green hydrogen is going to be as attractive looking uh, 10 years from now as it possibly is today because there's, just think about all the emissions regarding producing it in Stephenville and shipping it to Germany. So yeah, end usage is absolutely very friendly when we talk about emissions, but there's still a big downstream issue of getting it to market, isn't there? Well, it always is with any product. It's lessened, you know, like, for instance, if that, was, if that power is going to be used right here on the Port Port Peninsula or in the province, it would be a drastically different conversation. But I know what you're talking about. I mean, green hydrogen is a very clean source of energy, especially when generated by wind, which is how it gets the tag of green. Yes. What, uh, like, I, I, some people are against this, of course, and some people are for it. Um, I just don't see any downfalls from it. Like, even if we don't get to use it here in Newfoundland right away, I think it will become eventually. We're a small market. They're sending it off to Germany and wherever, right? Yep. It will reduce pollution for the world. Well, the European Union is hungry for energy. Well, the whole world is. It's the source of energy and the proximity to market, I think, is one of the concerns. And that's a business model dis- uh, discussion, by and large. And, of course, if John Risley is able to raise, what, we're talking about $12 billion or something? No one's oh, given no, away no, that no. kind of money. <laughs> I know you. Well, good luck with the rally. Give the folks the details of where the winds one more time. Well, it's going to be on the ramp in Stephenville. It's at, uh, going to be from 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, we also are taking donations for the food banks in the areas, uh, all the areas, if we can get enough food. And uh, hopefully we'll see everybody there. I appreciate the time this morning, Ken. Stay in touch. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, there... 
and the folks, whether it be from Protect NL or individual citizens or the Council of Canadians, people who have questions, remaining concerns, fair enough. I do think it's not unfair at all for folks who are concerned about timelines for public uh, input on these particular projects. And Well, I guess there's only one that's being considered at this moment in time, World Energy GH2, and their initial phase one of 164 wind turbines on the Port of Port Peninsula. Ultimately, when phase two comes to pass, the footprint of that project will be about 40% of the peninsula. And again, if you drive up the southern shore or down to Ramia and see the wind turbines that are there, they are nothing like what we're talking about putting up uh, in these particular projects. The wind turbines that are planned for the Port of Port Peninsula are taller than the Confederation Building. I mean, we are talking absolutely massive pieces of infrastructure. So, And nothing comes uh, at zero environmental impact. There's just no such thing in this world, regardless of the energy source we're talking about. Whether it be wind, because there's emissions uh, associated with actually building the monopiles and the turbines themselves and servicing them. Same thing with solar, same thing with critical minerals that are in the mining industry. So it's all the evaluation of total emissions from production to distribution then downstream usage, right? It's, a, it's not a just one-size-fits-all, simply at the end usage. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mike's here to talk about CETA. Kaylee Oakley, we're going to talk about uh, Santa to a senior and the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, John Hogan, is in the queue to talk about transforming the police. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Windsor Lake. He's the Minister of Justice and Public Safety. That's John Hogan. Minister Hogan, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? I'm great. Uh, thanks for taking my call this morning. I just wanted to have a quick chat about the Police Transformation Working Group that we announced on Monday. Um, you know, I think it's a very important step that the Department of Justice and Public Safety has taken in announcing this. I think it's needed. Uh, I was away uh, probably a couple of months ago meeting with my counterparts from across the country. We were meeting in Quebec and Obviously, one of the major topics that all public safety ministers across the country, including the federal minister, talked about was uh, how policing has changed across the country, uh, what it's going to look like in the future. So the timing is really great for us to make this announcement uh, to evaluate policing in our province. We need to make sure that all residents here are receiving uh, obviously the most effective and efficient policing services that's possible and we need to meet the you know meet the diverse needs of all our communities and groups throughout this province uh, it is going to be a big review um, it's going to look at things like you know how crime has changed throughout the province and throughout the country we're going to look at oversight of the police in this province accountability of the police how technology has changed things in uh, looking at crime and addressing crime in the province delivering our policing services to rural communities and remote communities in this province which can obviously bring about some difficulties, uh, recruiting and retaining officers and training them, uh, and all sorts of things like that. So it is a very big review. Uh, we use the word transformation working group for a reason, because we do feel that there will be changes coming that will really change what policing looks like in this province. Uh, and we use the term working group as well, because as issues come up and as the working group is able to look at things and make recommendations, it's a dynamic group, and we'll make changes go as they bring those recommendations forward. Uh, we're not announcing this group to say we'll get a report in you know one, two, three years down the road with a list of recommendations that we can act on then. We want to act as soon as possible when we're able to do so. Uh, so I'm very excited about this, and people in justice and public safety are excited about this as well. Uh, we did announce in last year's budget a new 10-person policing team within the Department of Justice and Public Safety that will work with this group as well. So we needed to get that in place before we made this announcement. Uh, certainly I've had heard some public criticisms about the announcement on Monday, uh, one of the major ones being that there might not be public engagement uh, from groups throughout the province. But I just want to ensure the residents of the province, as I said on Monday, that it's 
it's extremely important to hear from groups. It's, a, it's extremely important to hear from our indigenous groups, our rural communities, uh, other groups like LGBTQ and racialized groups in this province, women's groups, people. Everyone is affected by policing in this province. And I've said on Monday, and I'll say it again, we want to and we do need to hear from them. Part of the news release did actually mention a minister's advisory committee on policing, uh, and that'll be created under the uh, Royal Newfoundland Constabulary Act, uh, which will form a big part of how these public consultations are going to take place. Uh, and we welcome all sorts of groups to be part of that, and we'll populate that in the near future. When you talk about the importance of public consultation, and you mentioned the word diversity, how come inside the structure of the four-person working groups, uh, two government officials, a member of the RNC, a member of the RCMP, as opposed to including some of those groups that you just mentioned there? So whether it be a four-person group or a 10-person actual formalized working group, to hear those voices, to be part of all of the, uh, the inner workings and the consequential recommendations. If it's important for consultations, why not include them right up front? So, uh, you know, there's you know several ways, obviously, you could create this group. We decided to have a small group that's going to lead it, a bureaucratic team here within the Department of Justice and Public Safety. It's not something that we're sending out, as I said, to get a report down the road in one or two or three years. We do feel that the working group needs to be within the department so that we can act quickly when recommendations do come forward. That might not be possible if it was an external group uh, that we were waiting on to file reports down the road. So how do we balance that with the need to do consultations with the public? That's why we've created the minister... Uh, Minister's Advisory Committee on policing that can specifically deal with these consultations to hear from groups, to hear from, as I said, indigenous groups and women's groups, LGBTQ groups, uh, and any other, you know, municipalities, NL, I mean, anyone you can think of, certainly, we're going to have to reach out to to, uh, to discuss these consultations, mm-hmm. to have their view on what they feel that policing needs to look like in the province to make sure that individuals not only feel safe, but have trust in the RCMP and the RNC. Yeah, I don't think anyone's suggesting that you exclude the administrative voices or members of the uh, the government executive to be involved. It's more about the inclusion of other voices as a formal part of the group. They will absolutely be included, and they are a formal part. Okay. It was part of the announcement to link this group to the working group. So, you know, it's... Not, no one's intention to say that the working group uh, is going to make these decisions and we don't want to hear from anybody else. They have to work hand-in-hand hand with members of the public and these advocacy groups, uh, these communities in the province, to hear what they have to say to inform their decisions, uh, which we can then act on. Because the working group is within the department, uh, our goal is to act as quickly as possible once we have one, two, five, ten recommendations to improve policing in the province. So I think everybody welcomes this review, but will they also be looking at the public complaint system? Because there's a story in the media today and it's long been a concern because basically, and if you hear from Lynn Moore and others, the chief of police is an inherent conflict of interest with the process that's currently in place. So will there be a re-examination of the public complaint system? Because if it's simply the chief and the chief alone making decisions about how one complaint is heard and the outcome of said complaint, then we're probably not in the type of position that would include maybe civilian oversight or a different uh, complaint process. Will it be examined? Yeah, so two different things there. And as I did say off the top, we're going to be looking at oversight and we're going to be looking at accountability. So accountability would include that as what you just talked about. It is two different issues, both of which are going to be examined by this uh, transformation working group, and both, I think, which have been talked about in the public over the last little while. And, of course, it would be silly to ignore uh, those reports in the media, those comments by members of the public who've been through the system, who've dealt with the police, uh, to ignore their concerns. 
we've heard those concerns. They've been raised. They're formalized as part of this transformation working group, and they will be looked at. You're also the minister responsible for access to information and protection of the privacy office. So we've heard from Michael Harvey in the recent past about, you know, what he sees is a slide in the type of relationship between his office and your government. So talking about things like the overuse or potential abuse of a solicitor-client privilege. Talk about the fact that the most recent health care bill ahead of second reading was not shared with his office. It's the first time in seven years that that has not happened. So the privacy commissioner has concerns. Your comments. So there's no abuse of solicitor-client privilege uh, by any departments in the government from what I can tell. Uh, you know, solicitor-client privilege is a protected right that individuals have in this country, and it is very, very important. So just put yourself, I mean, you're, you're a member of the public. I'm sure you've had to talk to a lawyer on occasion. You need to feel comfortable that when you talk to your lawyer, the only person that is going to have that information is your lawyer. It allows an open dialogue and protects that right for you to have that discussion and to share the good, the bad, and the ugly with your lawyer. So that's protected in the access to information legislation as well. Lawyers here in this, in, in the Department of Justice and Public Safety and throughout all the departments in this government need to be able to give advice to the ministers or the deputy ministers or other staff that they can trust that that opinion is going to be protected. So the reason that it would not be disclosed to Mr. Harvey, the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner, is for that very reason. It's a, it's a very fundamental right to democracy in this country and in this province to protect solicitor-client privilege. I think you mentioned a health bill. I'm not sure what health bill you were referring it's to. It's Bill 20. It was the amalgamation of the four health authorities. You know, before it saw a second reading, repeatedly Mr. Harvey's office asked for a copy of it, which he did not receive. He says it's the first time in seven years that such a thing has happened. Yeah, so I'll just go to, I don't want to bore everybody with legal analysis here, but if you look at Section 112 of the legislation, what it does is says that there has to be consultation when the minister feels that there is that a proposed bill, so the bill might not even exist yet, it might be an idea of a proposed bill, when that proposed bill uh, may have consequences for either access to information or protection of privacy. So it's the minister's obligation when he or she feels uh, that there might be a risk to either of those items. And then the minister would consult with the privacy commissioner. The opinion that we have on that section, which we had a legal opinion or a, a written opinion from Mr. Clyde Wells, who's not only former premier of the province, he's a former chief justice of the Court of Appeal. He also actually wrote this legislation that Mr. Harvey is referring to. And what Mr. Wells told us was that consultation does not mean in every case that he has to see every section of the bill. I met with the office of the, I met with the privacy commissioner on this very interpretation. His view is that he needs to see the entire bill. Our view, based on Mr. Wells' opinion, is that he can and should and will see the relevant sections of a bill that affect uh, access to information or protection of privacy. So there's just a little bit of a difference of opinion about how much of that legislation needs to be seen. My personal view, based on Mr. Wells, is that the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner should always be informed of legislation, and we will be consulted on legislation that affects areas under his office. Yeah, Mr. Harvey I says... I clarify that. that. I don't disagree with him that he needs to see that information. Uh, Mr. Harvey says it's a violation of the access to information laws, period. So just in broad strokes, when it comes to privacy, because my thought was Bill 29 began the unraveling of the PC government. When people thought that they were being shielded from information that they should be able to see, then that lack of a trust and the erosion of faith in government is a major problem and a political calculation. But when it comes to uh, solicitor clients, 
attorney-client privilege. And Mr. Harvey's not in the business of releasing personal information. He's not going to release commercial sensitivities, those types of HR-related matters. So when it comes to this broad stroke question, when it comes to what should and should not be seen by the general public, why isn't it up to the uh, Privacy Commissioner versus the Minister of the Crown? Uh, it's never up to the Minister of the Crown what gets seen, right? I, I, if, an, if an access, if Paddy Daly files an access to information request here, I don't review that and say, look, he can see this. And no, 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 I mean that, like, right? in reference yeah. to the bills and what have you. Well, we're just interpreting the legislation, but in terms of solicitor-client privilege, your question there is that it can never be a document can never be withheld from the public on the basis that someone says it's solicitor-client privilege if it isn't. So, if a document is saying, you know, it's not going to be released because it's solicitor-client privilege, and an individual who made that application feels that that's not correct, the courts can determine that that document needs to be released. So, there was always ultimate protection that every document that should be public, that's not solicitor-client privilege, for example, needs to be released. The fact that um, it might not go to the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner doesn't mean that it's the end of the story. As okay. with anything in society, right? Courts are always going to have the final say. And the judge, a judge, can look at a document and say, you know what, Department, I don't think this is solicitor-client privilege. I don't think this is legal advice. It needs to be released to the public. So I need to be very clear on that, that that document, nobody can put a stamp on it and claim that it's solicitor-client privilege when it isn't, just for the sake of trying to not release it to the public. I totally agree with you. Transparency is super important. Uh, it needs to be done not only because these are public records, but to have faith in government officials as well. Uh, last one before I let you go. On the uh, working group regarding transformation of policing, will there also be an examination of human resources? Because when the RNC geographical footprint expanded and 10 additional officers, there will be questions there because the RNC is stretched pretty thin as it stands. All the vacancies inside the RCMP, and they've got a, a job recruitment drive ongoing. Will there be a look at whether or not we have enough money invested and consequently enough officers, whether it be for highway patrol, investigative services, and all through, through the gamut of law enforcement has to be part of it right if a recommendation comes in and says you need more officers in this part of the province well and that's another great reason to have this review within the department because then we can go to the department of finance and say what does the fiscal forecast look like for this recommendation if it requires more resources more cars more officers more civilians uh and and on and on and on so yeah it will look at resources it will look at what we need it will look at how policing is delivered and what that's going to cost i appreciate the time this morning minister okay thank you take care bye-bye that's john hogan he's the minister of justice of public safety. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. So we're to Kelly Oakley with Made to Sparkle. Talk about the upcoming Santa to a Senior program. Good morning, Kaylee. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm excellent. How about you? I'm great. All right. Tell us about Margaret Santa to a Senior Initiative. Yeah. So this is an initiative we do every year. This is our sixth year running. Um, so we, uh, the last couple of years, have linked up with Seniors NL. Um, so we're helping seniors that are currently still living at home that are low income that either have just some family or no family at all um so they do food hampers every year and we link up with our care packages to uh to share with them how do you identify who would be a recipient um so i don't personally choose myself as we right now as i said we link up with seniors nl so they have um they have seniors that contact them and they have a broad range of questions and stuff where they uh, they gather who, I guess, is the most 
in need at the time. Uh, and so my packages just kind of go towards those. What would people find in the uh, care package? So it's a, a broad range of things. You get uh, your essential shampoo, conditioner, uh, toothbrush, toothpaste, hairbrushes. Uh, but then we also put in some small prizes. So it could be anything from glasses cleaners to puzzles to uh, any anything like that. So how many people were you able to uh, give these gift of cheer last year? Last year we did 68, and that's uh, also including couples. So we do singles and couples. Terrific. Uh, I suppose I should have asked this from the onset, but tell us about Margaret. If the program's called Margaret's uh, Senior uh, Santa to a Senior, who's Margaret? Margaret uh, is my grandmother. Um, really tough to talk about. <laughs> She's uh, She was my very best friend. She was the most giving person I know. Uh, she taught me everything I know about sharing with those who are less fortunate than I. Um, my grandmother passed away uh, during the pandemic, uh, so this was my second year running when that happened so i re-released the initiative as margaret sent it to a senior because i i thought it was best that we uh we highlight her i'm glad i asked and i'm sure she's a beaming with a big smile with what you're doing here so congratulations it's a great program thanks for making time for the program this morning kaylee Thank you so much, Patty. Um, so everyone can reach out to us. Uh, Facebook is the best place to get us. Uh, that's just made to sparkle. We also have uh, Instagram and our website is sparklingday.ca where you can reach out to us there as well. And it's M-A-I-D, not M-A-D-E. Correct. Yes, right. M-A-I-D. Made to sparkle. Keep it up, Kaylee. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. There we go. That's a lovely program. Uh, let's go to line number four. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Good morning. A very interesting program, and, and, very, and, and congratulations to Kaylee and those people that are doing that work. As a senior, I know that because uh, a lot of those people need us out there. Thank you, Kaylee. Uh, thank you and the organization for most seniors don't speak out on that. They sort of suffer through it silently, and uh, very kind and very good of you to place a focus on that with uh, with seniors on health as well. I wasn't aware seniors on health did that service, but that's a great thing to do. Um, Patty, I, uh, I called uh, to speak about uh, CETA, C-E-T-A, the um, uh, Canada-European Trade Agreement people uh, visiting uh, St. John's the next couple of days. But before we got into that, you spoke to Mr. Hogan. <laughs> you threw a bit of it off the rails. Penny, would you help me understand what Mr. Hogan said? I understand that the Privacy Commissioner sought access to a bill before it went to the House and was turned down or, or didn't get it. And, and Mr. Hogan's explanation is they went out to a lawyer, in this case, former Premier Wells, who I think initially had some part in writing the initial um, uh, legislation, uh, who really basically came back and said, well, you haven't got to tell them everything. And if they don't like it, Mr. Hogan says uh, the privacy commissioner can take us to court. That's basically I it. Did I? What the hell? I mean, <laughs> he's a privacy commissioner, Mr. Hogan. He 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 don't he won't put that out on on X. I'm sure he won't. You know, confer with him. The privacy commissioner has some concerns on our behalf. He's an agent of the house of what you're doing with legislation, and you rightfully referred to Bill 29, I believe. Remember the Williams era when they put a muzzle on every bit of media out there? Um, 
So uh, I strongly encourage Mr. Hogan to get away from this. Oh, well, they won't like us. They can sue us, take us to court, you know? No, he's a privacy commissioner. That's why that office is there. We trust them. They're not going to go out and print that up on a newspaper someplace. So um, I don't know. I don't like the way that Mr. Hogan and the, and the Liberal government is bringing that. Patty, on to see that. Okay. I'm sorry, I, I, you were going to say something. No, I mean, they're just leaning on a written piece of legal advice from former Premier uh, Clyde Wells and former Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal. So they're yeah. leaning heavily on it. I tried to dig into it as best I could with the minister this morning, you know, even with a broad stroke question of shouldn't the final arbiter be the privacy commissioner of what could or should yeah. not be seen by the yeah. general public? I mean, I know that that's 100,000 feet above sea level, but I think that makes for an easier to understand question and hopeful answer. Yeah, it, it, it should have been answered. And, uh, and Mr. Hogan was, uh, he didn't show any respect by, uh, by failing to answer and dancing around and said, well, our legal opinion from our lawyer, Mr. Wells, no less. Um, uh, you know, you can go out and get a dozen lawyers to give you a dozen opinions. This is a privacy commissioner. Come on, Mr. Hogan. Smarten up. You know, smell the roses here. He's not going to privacy commissioners, not out to hurt us. He's out to help us. And if he's asking for something, don't hide behind the courts. Sue us. Take us to court. Give it to him. You know, never mind our lawyer says we don't have to. Anyway, I, I don't want to go off on that rant, but I'm certainly glad you raised it. Uh, the other things of the, you know, uh, of, of, of having a review of the administration of justice is a very good thing they're doing. But that uh, that soured his conversation, in my opinion. Patty, if I may, I'd like to jump on to CETA visiting us, the Canada-European Trade Agreement people and their counterparts in Ottawa. Yeah. Prime Minister, I understand, will be visiting our fair city again. Uh, and uh, the Premier and a few other things, there will be uh, a few glasses of schnapps extended, I think, at the rooms. I think there's going to be a little meal or two. I would take it. It's not going to be seal. Uh, we don't want to upset anybody from CETA, those wonderful people who ban our seal products going into the European Union uh, because, well, it's got nothing to do with it. It's got nothing to do with, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with the environment or anything like that. It's all got to do with fear. It actually so, does. I would suggest it has yeah. something to do with the environment. I would also say it could fall under the agenda item of loss of biodiversity. I think there's ways to include seal in that conversation if anyone is inclined to do exactly that. That's what I was sort of hoping you were going to say. Thank you. Because there is. Now, as I understand it, and believe me, I haven't been consulted under agenda, but uh, seals are not on the agenda no. for discussion on this. And uh, and I think anybody who raises it probably will be shown the door. That's a seal is a four-letter word in Europe and, uh, and on CETA. And on those in Canada responsible for overseeing our, the CETA agreement for Canada. Um, I've often used a comparison. You, you're old enough. I'm sure you are to know about Superman. You know Superman. I spoke to a, I spoke to a media person yesterday who said, what? And I referred to Superman had one thing that could bring him to his knees, one thing that could take all his power away. Kryptonite. Well, it's the same way. Yeah. And it's the same way with these bureaucrats from Ottawa. It's a terrible thing to use that word. These officials from Ottawa and these officials from the Canada-European Trade Agreement, Patty, the one thing that brings them to their knees, to their knees is SEALs. SEALs is the kryptonite. 
before any kind of a trade discussion. And not only in CETA, we have it in NAFTA, we have it in other agreements as well, where officials and in Ottawa who really don't want to talk about this issue at all, it's so unimportant to them. The only thing important to them is to keep it down. We now have 8 to 10 million seals out there all eating hamburgers. But it's so important to keep them off any agenda. Uh, Patty, have you heard, it's been on the street out here, that some rather ingenious person has is organizing a walking tour from the rooms to the homeless encampment down behind Confederation or behind the Colonial Building. Has that has that made the news? I, I haven't heard it, but I saw it talked about it on social media. Yeah, I passed it on to on social media. It's like somebody, you know, that they. It was uh, it's a very important thing. When you bring these powerful people to Newfoundland and Labrador, they're very important. They're here for energy. They're here for the Mr. Risleys of the world. They're here for Canada and, and Germany wants our, our hydrogen and the European Union wants something from us. It's very important, very high power stuff. But if somebody did that, if you're out there and you're listening, I'd like to hear from you. Or I'd like you to call the media if you're offering a, sure. a walking tour. It's only five minutes away, anyway, from the from the rooms down to the homeless people. They'd be, I'm sure, love to share a sandwich with them or something. You know? And I'm uh, Justin Brake, who is the editor at the Independent. He's actually spending a few days living in a tent uh, with these people behind the Colonial Building to get an upfront and personal understanding of what's going on, which I think is good work by him. Uh, Justin does good work. Exactly. I, I appreciate it's the time, cool. Mike. Thanks for calling. This morning. Nice talking to you, Patty. Thank you for the work that you do. Appreciate it. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Justin Campbell is in the queue. He's the program director at First Voice Urban Indigenous Coalition. Of course, they wrote a report with some recommendations for law enforcement, most importantly, civilian oversight. We'll talk to Justin right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the program director at First Voice Urban Indigenous Coalition. That's Justin Campbell. Good morning, Justin. You're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing okay. Listen, I wanted to uh, respond to some of the points that um, Minister Hogan had to say when he was on the program not too long ago there. Sure, go ahead. Um, yeah, so listen, I respect the minister for coming on the show and uh, telling people about this policing transformation working group. Um, but I would like to, and to his credit, he's one of the few ministers in the provincial government that actually... Uh, gets out and speaks uh, to the public when concerns are raised, so I respect him for that. But I would really like to cut through some of the political spin that he's putting on this working group. Where do you want to start? Uh, (laughs) It's a good question. Um, I want to start with uh, some of the points that he raised about having heard concerns uh, that are being raised by Indigenous groups like First Voice, by racialized uh, groups, by women's groups, and he mentioned LGBTQ groups as well. He says that he is uh, hearing these concerns, but I'm not really sure that he's actually listening to them. People have been uh, quite direct in saying that the problems at the working group that they've struck to ostensibly transform policing, um, he says, um, I I just want to lay out some facts about this group. First, they created it without engaging with the people who he assures the public he will be uh, consulting with. So no one knew this was coming, despite, um, you know, people working on these issues for, for years. Um, and that includes First Voice. That includes the St. John Status of Women Council. I could go through the whole list of groups that have been working on these issues. Um, 
The working group has no objectives. It has no specific timelines. And everyone heard the minister say he's not looking for a report. He's looking to action recommendations as they come up. He said whether the, and he wants to um, act quickly in his words, whether it's one, two or ten recommendations. Well, what puzzles me here, Patty, is that First Voice uh, a year ago released 26 very specific recommendations for transforming policing in this province, not in any kind of particularly innovative way, but in a way that would bring us in line with uh, the other developed uh, jurisdictions in the developed world when it comes to policing. And notably, I guess the most important was the inclusion of civilian oversight, which they say is not necessarily the focus here. It will be evaluated. The problem therein is that there's only two entities represented on the working group, the group that funds the police and the police themselves, as opposed to your voice or any of the other advocacy groups that you mentioned. So, you know, there's a lot to this, and I think it's a welcome type of review. I do have serious questions about the makeup of the group, not to say that they might not come up with with reasonable transformational ideas or recommendations, but it's not, even if the world of public consultation follows through the way the minister mm-hmm. described, it doesn't replicate the importance of having different voices in that group as a formal member of the group, not simply, you know, having an opportunity to speak to the group. Yeah, that's right. Um, a consultation is not the same as participating in decision making or in co developing solutions, which is um, the exact model that we used for our own working group on police oversight. And in fact, we invited um, the Department of Justice, we invited police um, forces in the province to sit with us at that group and co develop uh, solutions to transform policing. Um, and they all declined to do that. They declined to provide feedback on our recommendations. So when you take all of this together, I have to say it strains credibility to say that they're taking the issue seriously. If it turns out to, and I'm not sure where this is going to land, and, you know, even if there's no timelines associated with a final list of recommendations, which I don't really know why that would be the case, even if there was, say, you know, three different gates that we could swing open or close. So we'll have a report, an initial report in six months and a final report in two years, whatever, so that we can actually see some status of the progress that the group is making. So there's still big questions. I welcome the review, but I'm not so sure that it might not end up being an exercise of utility. Will police members of the working group want to see transformational uh, uh, of their organizations that will lead to different protocols, different practices, different levels of scrutiny and accountability? Will they actually welcome that and recommend it themselves? I don't know. Yep. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And again, back to the minister saying he wants to act quickly on these things. Again, he could uh, he could start this morning on uh, developing a plan to implement the 26 recommendations that we already put forward. So the recommendations are out there. We know what to do. It's a matter of acknowledging that there is a problem, that we need to improve civilian-led police oversight in this province, that we're just as good as any other jurisdiction in the developed world. Um, And we still don't even have um, a response from the minister on any of those recommendations. So I don't think that he's nearly as receptive to recommendations that are transformational as he claims to be. It's too bad that some of this type of conversation started with what it was a very clunky reference to defund the police. It was never about taking all their money away. It was about transforming policing. I, I think that really derailed some of these conversations, to be honest with you, because not only was it clunky, it wasn't even actually a fair description of what people were actually talking about. And to be fair, First Voice has not taken the position that the police need to be defunded. We've taken the 
position that the system needs to be improved sure. because we recognize that there's a lack of trust among the public. There's a lack of confidence in accountability and transparency mechanisms. But these are not problems that are insurmountable. They've been solved in other jurisdictions. We looked at how those solutions have been implemented elsewhere. We took the best of them and said this is how it could be applied to Newfoundland and Labrador. And then we have uh, the minister now announcing the formation of this transformational policing working group. Uh, when we've already got the solutions out there, it's a matter of acknowledging that there's a problem. It's a matter of moving forward on the recommendations that have already been put forward and actually listening, not just hearing the public criticism. Beyond civilian oversight, Justin, just pepper the listening public with a couple of the other key specific recommendations that your report made before we move off to the break. Yeah, that's right. So the core of our report was indeed on building a civilian-led police uh, oversight board, and that would be responsible for a variety of things um, from high-level high policy to recruitment to many of these other areas that they're talking about. Um, and that uh, civilian-led police oversight would have diverse voices. We had recommendations in our own report about how that diversity could be captured. Notably, as you've already pointed out, that diversity does not exist in the working group that the government has now announced. So it's not civilian-led, but it's expected to serve uh, the civilian public. Um, as for other recommendations that we have here, there were uh, nine recommendations on transforming the uh, public complaints uh, process, which is, as uh, Lynn Moore called it, a uh, daft process, which it is. It's nearly impossible for regular members of the public uh, to navigate. We also included four recommendations on improving public trust when it comes to CERT NL, that's the Serious Incident Response Team. And then we had two other recommendations um, beyond beyond those, those three big areas that I mentioned. I appreciate you making time uh, for the show this morning, Justin. Thanks a lot. Yeah, just, just one last thing, sure. uh, Patty. Um, now that we've laid all of this out and now that the minister seems to want to make public statements um, in support of the working group, I want to challenge him to call back um, and explain why he is not acting on recommendations that have already been identified by the groups that he listed. Indigenous people, women, uh, racialized groups, LBGTQ groups, all of these groups were involved in the development of these 26 recommendations. So I challenge him to call back and give a clear answer to that. Fair enough. He's welcome to do exactly that. Thank you, okay, Justin. Thanks, buddy. You're welcome. Take care. That's Justin Campbell, who's Program Director at First Voice in, uh, Urban Indigenous Group, and he mentioned the, the Serious Incident Response Team, CERT, the shooting death at the hands of the RNC uh, of a Sudanese man who was laid to rest some five months after his death. The investigation has concluded. The report is in the hands of Mike King, who's the leader of the Serious Incident Response Team, so we assume we'll get some information very soon. Let's go. Before we get to the break, we'll uh, take Sharon on one. Sharon, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. Hi. Uh, I'm calling uh, concerning the uh, homeless that they were looking for pallets. That's right. Yes. Uh, do you have anyone that I can get in touch with? A number, or they can get in touch with me? Just, you, you have pallets to donate, then? Is that? Yes, I have. Yes. Okay. I don't. There's no real contact person necessarily representing okay. the group. I do speak with some of the folks who have been advocates for these people living in this mini tent encampment. So, are you in St. John's by chance? Uh, yeah, I'm in CBS, and I can deliver them. Okay. Well, if you ha if you can deliver them yourself, yeah. I suppose you can go directly to the Colonial Building yourself, and people will be there to help you offload. If you let me know around what time you'll be there, I'll make sure there's people there to help you. 
Yeah, I've, I'm good there. I got some uh, people, my husband and my cousins, and and they're gonna between the four of us, we can we can do it. Okay, terrific. So, so go right to the colonial building, back up the truck, and offload the pallets. I'm sure they'll be more than pleased to see them. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you very much. Okay. Take Have care. a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. Uh, a quick question. Would you want to read my memoir, Dave? Of course you wouldn't. But people want to read Rick Mercer's. He's talking about the road years. A memoir. Rick Mercer in the queue. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. All right, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the author of The Road Years, a memoir, Rick Mercer. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show. First off, how was your flight? Uh, it was good. I got in last night. It's a beautiful day. You know, no complaints. I know what you're. you're it, I know. I sent you a text and explained the situation that was happening on the plane. But we can't go into that because it would embarrass the poor guy I was next to. And would have to go through the privacy commissioner, very likely. Yeah. There you go. Rick, how's the tour going? You know, it's great. The book is called The Road Years, and it's about my 15 years on the road. And, of course, between the pandemic and everything else, I just stopped being on the road. And this was uh, this was wetting my beak again. I was in Uxbridge and Winnipeg and Calgary, Vancouver, Regina, Saskatoon. Uh, I still got four or five dates left. Some of those dates I did with Jan Arden, and that was just bananas. Uh, it's It's been really great being out on the road again. I got to say, I uh, I enjoyed every minute of it, and uh, yeah, I, I have no complaints. Was the break from being on the road a welcome break? Because people think it's really glamorous and a lot of glory, and you know, us traveling around the country, traveling around the world. But for people who do it for a living, it can become pretty taxing on the body and the mind. So was it a welcome break, or how do you characterize it? You know, I'm good at it. So some people aren't. Some people just find it a very difficult life. And uh, I'm fortunate that I'm good at it. You know, if you look at Alan Doyle's tour schedule that's coming up, if you go on his website, it, it looks like it's it's inhumane almost. But yet he's good at it. And he's happy out there on the road. It's just something that we probably share. I... Uh, yeah, I don't miss it. I don't. I, I didn't unpack for 15 years, and that's not a joke. Like, literally, there was always a suitcase in the front door. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't want to go back there again, but I had no regrets because there wasn't a lot of excitement, you know, and that's what the book is about. There was there was every member of Rush I met on the road. There was there was the train of death. There was jumping out of airplanes. There was adventures with Jan Arden. There were prime ministers. There were fishermen and fighter jets. And, you know, there, there was a lot of stuff jammed into those 15 years. <laughs> no question. I'm trying to recall what I read on the Indigo website regarding your book, and I think it goes something like this. You know, we all know what you've achieved in this life professionally, but it comes from the lack of promise as a schoolboy. I think that was the, the statement <laughs> made there. So what do you attribute this success to? Because if you weren't a promising youngster, you certainly turned out to be a pretty talented adult. I just like, and I attribute this to being a Newfoundlander, I suppose. I like talking to people. I really do. You know, my partner says, God, you'll talk to a stump. I really do. I enjoy it. I'm the guy who gets on the plane. If the seat next to me is empty, I just assume someone sit down and, and I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about them. I enjoy that part. Uh, I don't think I have a lot of skills, but I think I can make people feel relaxed. And, and my favorite thing in the world is always taking someone like an oyster fisherman or something who, who's never been on TV before, putting them on TV, but making them relaxed enough 
that they come across like a rock star. That was always, I, I felt if I had any superpower, that was it. And, uh, and I love doing that more than anything else. And amazingly, and I've known uh, this, and I've learned this lesson the hard way, you know, it's difficult to work with and make a good uh, sitcom or a scene or a bit with animals and children, but you never shied away from either. No, I didn't. And they, you know, because people love animals. It's the people interacting with the animals that don't really like it. But uh, we always put dogs on the show and we, and I always put kids on the show. And of course we did the spread the net challenge where we would travel around the country every year and we'd visit the schools that raised the most money for the spread the net initiative, which was raising money for bed nets in Africa. And they would be high school students and elementary students and junior high students. And they were always great. And they were some of my favorite shoots. I love that. And you talk about animals. I seem to remember an episode where you had an unfortunate interaction with a cow. Well, I ha- it wasn't an unfortunate okay. interaction. I was, I, was, I was doing the job, Patty, and the job entails, you know, penetrating the cow with your arm to see if God. the baby was okay. That was the job. Oh and God. so that was my job, to do the job and do it to the best of my ability. Well, it looks like it was a real but success. I also came, I also, you know, speaking of animals, and I write about this in the book, uh, going into Algonquin Park and opening a bear den in the dead of winter, and there's a mother bear in there, and they're not completely out because they have cubs, but they're on the doze. They're like mom on the couch who looks like they're asleep but still has an idea of what the children are up to. And... I had to crawl in there and take the babies out while this mother is looking at me and then inject the mother and then weigh the babies and weigh the mother. And it was some pretty hair-raising experiences over the years, looking back. Terrific stuff. So people who would like to say hello to you up close and personal this evening, get an autographed copy of The Road Years of Memoir. Where are you? I'm at Chapters tonight, 5.30, and uh, it, it's been great. And the book, you know, like, this is our second week, number one in the national bestseller list. And I tell you, there's never, uh, when something like that happens, I, uh, I really, I have to stop and go for a walk around the block and give my head a shake. But uh, it's amazing how many people have been coming out at these signings and uh, how many Newfoundlanders, of course, have been coming out and, and uh, it's just been great. So, yeah, I hope people come out tonight. Chapters 530. Congratulations. Good luck with it, Rick, and thanks for the time. Thanks, thanks Patty. Anytime. Bye-bye. Here we go. Rick Mercer, one of our favorite sons. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's say good morning to Alexis Foster, who is the CEO of Newfoundland and Labrador's chapter of the Canadian Home Builders Association. Good morning, Alexis. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, the talk about housing has been endless, and rightfully so over the recent past, but all these different pots of money and tax breaks and what have you, yet a comment coming from your organization I think is interesting. You know, it's the suggestion that some of these initiatives have actually slowed uh, progress. How so? Well, there's um, the provincial announcement, the five-point plan that they announced a couple of weeks ago. There was um, a note in that about secondary and basement suites and an incentive where homeowners access up to $40,000. So we're seeing a lot of homeowners saying, well, you know what, I wanted to put in a basement suite, but maybe I'll wait until we hear a little bit more about what this program looks like and see if I can actually access those funds. 
So what are some of the unknowns there? That's always a funny question to ask because if it's up to, it's a forgivable loan as well, that $40,000. So, you know, increase the value of your own home, additional revenue coming in via the rent itself. So what are some of the questions that are still looming on that program? Well, right now the government has not decided how that program is going to work. So there isn't an application uh, pro, uh, process right now. Uh, so we're just waiting uh, until that actually comes out so that people can start applying for it. When we talk about, say, for instance, a tax break, a GST tax break on building affordable units, you know, the price of a house is the price of a house. It doesn't matter if a private developer builds it or a community group builds it. it they all cost the same. It's all the, just the subsidies that change the water on the beans. What's the appetite amongst your members to access those particular building apartments uh, versus single-family dwellings, given some of the tax breaks? Does it actually make it affordable for your, uh, your members? Yeah, it's definitely making it more attractive. So where we're seeing the removal of the GST and HST uh, provincially and federally as well, it could potentially save hundreds of thousands of dollars depending on the size of the build. So it certainly makes sense. We're in a point right now, CMHT announced that we need 60,000 homes in the next six years. So we're looking at 10,000 units every year. Um, that is quite substantial. It's, it's quite higher than what we have done in the past. And purpose-built rentals may be a way for people to actually access these units. Yeah, like last year was almost 1,400 home starts. This year, about 899, if I remember the numbers correctly. A uh, real gap between 900 and 10,000. So Definitely. inside this world of trying to hit the affordability target, it's one thing to make it more attractive for a developer to get in on some of these government programs. But how do we ensure and how do we control affordability on the other side. I know the government's program is pretty clear on that front. The developer will be the landlord, but the rent will be set by the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. But outside that program, how do we hit affordability? Because building a single-family dwelling at a couple hundred bucks per square foot, that doesn't come out the other end as affordable, does it? No, it definitely doesn't. So um, all of these programs are phenomenal. There's uh, even in the federal economic update yesterday, um, there was announcements and was mostly focusing on the social side of housing, which is incredibly important. We need all types of housing in the housing spectrum. But 95% of Canadians actually live in homes that we either own or rent. Um, so we're going to have to start addressing affordability for those people uh, as well. So we've been advocating to the federal government to bring back 30-year amortization periods. This will make home ownership more affordable. Um, people will hopefully be able to, to get into homes easier that way um, and afford the payments for them. And we're also looking at the stress test. The stress test has uh, really went over and above correcting any concerns people had in the market. Uh, Canadians have a 0.14% arrears rate on their mortgages, which pretty much means we don't miss mortgage payments. Um, so it really overcorrected and is really pricing people out of being able to be a, become a homeowner. Yeah, I mean, mortgage arrears, there's over 5 million mortgages in the country, just over 8,000 are in arrears. So it's a very, very, very low number. So in addition to stress test and the you know, amortization periods, also in an effort to build the number of units that we need is people to build them. I mean, how yeah. dire an issue is it with skilled trades? 
oh, we're, it's, it's everywhere. Everywhere is having issues with labour shortages right now, not just skilled trades, but we have been advocating again to the federal government um, when we're looking to bring in newcomers into Canada that we are trying to attract those who are actually skilled in trades to build homes because when they come here, they're going to have to have somewhere to live as well. Um, so we have been pushing that uh, to ensure that we do get the skilled trades we need. We're trying to encourage people that are here and our youth to think about skilled trades. It's it's a great um, career to get into. So we're hopeful that through the next little while, we will see more people come into the skilled trade sides of things. Uh, my understanding is in the federal government targets of in and around a half a million newcomers per year, some of it is targeted, which does indeed include skilled trades. How, uh, how much they adhere to those targeted approaches remains to be seen because there have been a lot of moving parts in the immigration world. Uh, last one. So it's one thing for a developer to be interested or incentivized to do something, you know, identify a piece of land, engineering, design, permitting. Before you actually put a hammer to a nail, it takes too long. You got carry cost concerns. The municipalities really move at a snail's pace. Is that an issue that you see any optimism on the uh, horizon? Because as someone who's been involved a couple of times, it's excruciating to deal with municipalities to get permits and the like. How big a deal is it for your members? Oh, it's, it's a huge deal. Um, we actually have committees that meet and just talk about some of the challenges that they're facing in order to get these homes built. The rezoning is always an issue. Um, so we are optimistic and hopeful that the Housing Accelerator Fund, the federal fund, will help reduce some of this red tape um, and speed up the process by which we actually see permits getting out. So we see more houses getting built. Uh, that is the whole purpose of this fund. Um, so we are hopeful that it will help with some of those issues that we're facing, but it's certainly a concern for our members and, and for anybody who's looking to, to build a home. Yeah, they've unlocked some uh, federal land here for these purpose-built uh, homes or units, and of course the city's talking about uh, density zoning when we try to build more homes in the city proper itself. It, far be it for me to describe the, the lag or the lead time between identifying land and building a home. Just paint us a picture of what that really means insofar as time and cost. Oh my goodness, that is a very good question for you, Patty. I am not personally a home builder, but I do hear from all of our members um, that it can, it can really range. If you're looking at trying to get some rezoning alone, um, we've unfortunately had members that that's taken over a year in some municipalities. Um, so well, once you actually get it rezoned, then there's actually the construction side of things, the inspections. Um, so it, it can take quite a while. Uh, on that one, you mentioned inspections. I think there's probably a shortage of inspectors. Just imagine if we're talking about 900 home starts this year, they need to build 10,000. What does that mean for the world of inspectors? Yeah, so it's labor again. It's another concern, definitely. There's going to have to be an increase in capacity in order for them to, to meet these inspection requirements going forward. Your industry is going to get a keen focus in the years to come. There's money to be made, and there's money out there to incentivize build, but between skilled trades and permits and all the rest of it, it's going to be a real handful. Anything, any final thoughts before we say goodbye, Alexis? Um, well, just to say that uh, CHBANL is, is all about affordability. We want to ensure that 
Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have a, a place to call home, a safe place to call home. So if you are looking to um, build a home, renovate a home, uh, feel free to look at our website, chbanl.ca. Look at our membership list. These are members who uh, adhere to high standards. They will make sure that your homes are built um, net zero, potentially, if you, if you want that. Uh, it's certainly built to code and built well. So um, that's something that I would like people to know. I Definitely. appreciate you making time for the show, Alexis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. That's Alexis Fosser. She's the CEO of the Newfoundland Labrador Chapter of the Canadian Home Builders Association. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jen's in the queue to talk about the ceiling industry, and then we've got a draw deadline coming up with the uh, Canadian Hard Hearing Association and their Christmas raffle. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jen. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do um, I just wanted to touch base with you on the uh, the meetings that are happening in St. John's there with the Prime Minister and the EU trade people. Sure. Um, when I mean, I own a business that um, that specializes in steel products in St. John's, but I'm, beyond that, I'm just an advocate for renewable resource use, biodiversity, and economic well-being of the province. Um, if I look at the Prime Minister's own press release as to what these meetings are about. Like I look through them, creating jobs and opportunities, building middle class, fighting climate change, halting biodiversity loss, building sustainable and resilient economies for future generations. Like I, I can't think of another industry that ticks all those boxes like the ceiling industry does. And the seemingly the seeming lack of it being present at these talks or on the agenda is pretty frustrating uh, to say the least um yeah, I consider we just had a SEAL summit, whatever that means, here not so long ago. I, I would imagine it will seep into some of the conversation. I think it probably will. It's not a formal agenda item, and that might be just strategic, you know, whether or not people would be even willing to entertain that conversation versus we just slip it in on the fly. So I don't know, and I won't be in the room to hear any of these discussions, but I'll be curious to get some updates or summaries. Yeah, I, w- I would be very surprised, honestly. I uh, I would be pleasantly surprised. I I would love to be proven wrong. I don't I don't haven't heard that there's any mention of it being brought up. And frankly, from what I've seen for from the government over the past decade, um, there's no spine involved to bring it up. Um, I testified at the SEAL study in Ottawa back in April. I was invited to to present and to have my questions um, or to be asked questions and answer them, and um, all every party in the room the committee was composed of liberal uh, mps of conservative mps of block mps and after i did my presentation and answered the questions every one of them came up to me and said you're you're spot on um and i left that room thinking okay the people in this room they are on board they agree they hear what i have said and and they, they heard it from other presenters over the months of that study as well. But I always had that question of whether it would trickle to the rest of the the representatives in those parties. And um, I guess I guess we'll see here. From my experience, my 10-year-old daughter negotiates access to her Halloween candy better than these government officials negotiate billion-dollar deals. And I will say that um, they're not here in Newfoundland by accident or just by coincidence. They're here because they want to, well, basically destroy. I mean, there, there's definitely uses for renewable energy, but they, in that process, they want to destroy our lands and our oceans. Um, and it's a prime opportunity for our government to leverage that and to, to get the SEAL messages in 
the EU ban on Canadian sale products is racist. And beyond that, it contravenes several international um, conventions that the EU is signatory to, like the Convention on Biodiversity, uh, the United Nations Rights on uh, Indigenous Peoples. So if, if this topic does not get brought up or get leveraged, I'm going to be extremely, extremely disappointed. And I expect better, and I think everyone else should as well. You know, when the World Trade Organization makes a broad ruling that seal imports are not allowed, it's just so ridiculous. It goes to the power of whatever lobby groups or countries, because all the while they'll be willing to go to Madrid to a bullfight, but you can't import a humanely harvested seal product, whether it be the pelt, the meat, or the omega-3 oil. So it's just mind-numbing how they've approached this conversation. Let's just say it enters into the discussion at this particular summit. Let's just say the World Trade Organization reverses their stance on it. Is there a market? Because, you know, all the consideration that people have given to it and the propaganda campaigns they've been exposed to, is there an actual market for the product? They even take what the quota is in place today because we don't even take the number of seals we're allowed to take annually because there's nowhere to sell it. Now, some of that's based on bans, but I wonder what the appetite looks like. Yeah, well, I mean, we turn away requests for orders from the EU. I I won't say weekly, but certainly um, every two weeks or so. And uh, then people come here on cruise ships and stuff. And even though they might be allowed to bring it back personally, they don't want to take the chance. And um, the fact that we can't actively explore market opportunities and, and when the eu was was open and, and those other countries allowed and accepted the products we were able to fill the quotas that we had um we were able to process everything carino and south dildo was yeah. running at full tilt so i i absolutely do think that if we were able to get that opportunity it would benefit many areas of rural newfoundland labrador well, you know, I can imagine how quickly it would be sold on Fifth Avenue in New York City. You know, people still have that appetite for a fur coat, and that would indeed include a seal fur coat. Uh, last comments to you, Jen, before we say goodbye. Yeah, again, um, everything that the EU ban is about uh, is is based on lies, misinformation, and it is illegal. As I, as I said, it contravenes international conventions that the EU is signatory to. Um, I, where is our premier on this? Where is our fisheries minister? Where is our federal fisheries minister? Because we do know um, the, the impact that seals are having on our aquatic species and um and, and not on themselves. They're eating themselves at a house and home. And no one wants to see a population uh, die of disease and starvation when there are alternatives where they are uh, harvested humanely and their pelts and their meat and their oil gets put to good use. It's just a no-brainer to me. I hope I'm proven wrong, and I hope people step up. I appreciate the time, Jen. Thank you for this. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. It's Jen Shears. Of course, she's in the industry itself. Let's go to line number four. Before we get to the news, say good morning to the executive director of the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's our friend Leon Mills. Good morning, Leon. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me. Happy to, to do here. it. Happy to do it, sir. What's going on? Yeah, well, as you know, our ultimate dream home, 38, is on the go. We had a great response to our early bird last month, and now we have a new uh, offering this year. It's a Christmas cash bonus. There's two prizes of $10,000 up for grabs. And today, midnight tonight, is the deadline to purchase tickets at ultimatedreamhomelottery.com. And the draw will be held on December 7th. So uh, whoever the winners are, they'll get some money for Christmas. So it's a great opportunity for people to, uh, to buy in. You had a good uptake on the early bird deadline. How are the ticket sales overall? Oh, doing really good. Uh, we're, we're ahead of last year and hope to keep that going. 
you know, we always try to work for a sellout, and uh, we haven't gotten there yet. I don't. We come close a few times, but it's going very well. We're very pleased with the response to date, and we appreciate the public support. And we're trying to keep it going now. Of course, leading up to you know uh, the January fourth deadline, which is not that far away. And uh, so uh, this is the uh, Christmas bonus draw that we're trying to uh, encourage people to buy into at this time. Do you have the uh, monies earmarked for anything in particular, or just straight into the general coffers for hearing loss no, consultations okay. and no, screenings? General overall operation, but mostly for our programs and services, of course. That's what we're all about. And Patty, as you know, we're mostly self-funded, so uh, you know we have to rely on the public to uh, to exist. Uh, over 95% of our revenues come from you know our lotteries and uh, our spring lottery and our Christmas lottery, uh, uh, all for Dream Home lottery. So it's very important, vital. Uh, we're the only organization that exists to provide programs and supports to people with hearing loss. So uh, you know we hope that people will recognize that as they have in the past for a long time, and uh, will continue to do so going forward. Leon, most people would think that, you know, hearing loss happens as I age, but there's a number of youth in the province that also avail of your services. Oh, Patty, I'm so glad you brought that up. The fastest-growing demographic of people with hearing loss are actually people in the 18 to 30 age group, and that mostly comes from wearing these earbuds, right? And there's nothing wrong with wearing them, per se, in and of themselves, but most people have the volume too loud. So if you you know if you're listening to a high volume for any more than an hour a day, a couple hours a day, you're you're, you're damaged, permanently damaging your hearing. And so yes, that that is the fastest growing demographic. So it's a real serious issue that uh, young people need to be cognizant of and and hopefully uh, take some steps to prevent. Where do I get a ticket, Leon? Well, uh, uh, as always, it's www.ultimatedreamhomelottery.com. And, Patty, also people can buy into the 50-50. Don't forget, people love their 50-50. It's now approaching $600,000. And if people want, there's a live tracker on their website that people can see it in real time as it goes up and watch it grow. So, ultimatedreamhomelottery.com. And again, we appreciate everybody's support, and we hope that everybody has a safe and wonderful holiday. I appreciate your time. Good luck with it, Leon. Stay in touch. And thank, yeah, thank Patty, and thanks to VOCM as always for the wonderful support. We wouldn't be here without you. Thank you very much. Happy to do it. Stay in touch. All right, take care. There he goes, Leon Mills, Executive Director, the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll talk about the working group to transform policing in the province, particularly the police complaints process. Litigator Lynn Moore is in the queue. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to lawyer Lynn Moore. Good morning, Lynn. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Terrific. Before we get into the police complaints process period, your thoughts on the structure of this working group to look at transforming policing? Well, I, I'm glad that they're looking at transforming policing because it's something that really needs to be done. I am disappointed in the way that they, they went about establishing this group or the composition of the group in that they didn't include any community members. In particular, I'm thinking First Voice, who have already done a lot of work in this area, provided government with a report that uh, government has chosen not to respond to. I know as well that the um, St. John's Status Women Council have been very uh, interested in policing issues and have ideas. So it's unfortunate that uh, some non-police people weren't uh, included or non-government people weren't included in the 
um, in the formation of the committee. And, you know, I think all the people that are there are, you know, I don't, I'm not being disrespectful to them. I'm sure they're good people. But when you work within a system, sometimes it's hard to see the sort of patterns of thinking that you're involved in. It can be really helpful to have someone with outside eyes uh, as, as part of your team. I, saying that, we absolutely need people who know the system and who are familiar with policing to be part of it because they also can see the flaws. But in terms of objectivity and, and not being part of groupthink, it would be really helpful to have others from the community there. Yeah, for me, it's not a matter of excluding government officials and or law enforcement because both are required, I would think, on this working group. It's about including the different voices. We actually had Justin Campbell on from First Voice this morning sharing his perspective. So I think it's pretty common sentiment out there that it's welcomed exercise, but is it going to get the intended results if you don't have those outside voices? Minister Hogan was also on the program this morning talking talking about what will be public consultations with the various groups that are not formally part of the working group. So there's a difference between being consulted versus being in the room at all times as part of the active working group. Okay. Let's get to the police complaints process. You know, you talk about the fact that the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary Act has been in existence for over 30 years, but problematic from the start is a quote from you. How does the process work currently? Then we'll dig into why it's daft. Well, the process works if, if I have a problem with, as a member of the public, if I have a problem with the conduct of a police officer, uh, then I make a complaint, and that gets investigated by a different uh, police officer, usually a sergeant in the professional standards section. The sergeant writes a report. The report goes to the chief, and then the chief decides whether or not the conduct complained of is worthy of discipline. And when you're a police officer and you're facing employee discipline, you are faced with a charge under the public complaint regulations. And so the police, the chief of police decides, um, in this example, we'll say the chief agrees that there is evidence that the police officer should be charged. So the police directs that a charge be laid. And then there's a hearing, and involved in the hearing are the chief, uh, the lawyer uh, for the chief, the person who's made the complaint, and the police officer who is usually represented by counsel. There's no uh, funding available for uh, people who make complaints against the police officer to be represented by counsel. They, they can be represented by counsel, but, you know, in these times and in many times, it's, it's very difficult to be able to afford to pay someone to represent you at uh, this kind of a hearing. So you go into this hearing um, as a member of the public. You've made your complaint. Uh, there's been an investigation. Someone has spoken to you about it, the, you know, the sergeant investigating. You go into the hearing, and the chief asks the officer for a plea. Say the officer pleads not guilty. Then the counsel for the chief reads a summary of what the investigator has learned and asks you if you have any comment on it. And it might be 15, 20 pages that the uh, lawyer reads out and asks the officer if the officer has any comment on it. Now, they and their lawyer have had a copy of it, and they've prepared their response to it. But you, as a member of the public, you're just supposed to wing it. And then the chief makes a decision and asks if anybody has any comment on what the penalty should be. And, of course, the uh, lawyer for the, the police officer, you know, has a lot of thoughts on what punishment should be. But the lawyer or the person who's making the complaint, uh, they uh, are given more 
information at this point in time about the officer's career and whether or not they've been subject to discipline before, and you're asked for your position on what the penalty should be, and you, you know, have no idea. You've had no chance to prepare. Then the chief makes his decision as to, you know, what the penalty should be, and you have the option of appealing to the commission, the public RNC Public Complaints Commission, and you have to show or convince the commissioner that you have, that the chief has made some kind of mistake, that there's something that needs to be done, and then the commission does its own investigation, and they make their decision about whether or not the decision of the chief should be upheld or whether or not your appeal should be upheld and be allowed to go to a hearing. And at that hearing in front of a a lawyer who's been appointed as an adjudicator under the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary Act, um, at that point, you, as a member of the public making a complaint, you get disclosure. You get to see what what they learned in all the prior investigations. What was done, you know, in the original instance where you had your comp- you had the incident with the police that caused you to complain. What the sergeant found out. You get to find out all that, and you get to prepare for the hearing um, and to be a, a meaningful participant at that hearing. Up to that point, you are really not, uh, you know, not, you're there, but you're more like a token than a participant because you, you can't meaningfully participate if you don't know what has gone on before. So would a fundamental adjustment simply be a disclosure up front versus the process you just described or how, if you had your druthers, what would you do? Well, there'd be a police services board who would deal with this, not the chief of police, because, um, and this is not directed to the person who's in that seat now. This is about the position itself. Um, the, the chief of police both decides if there's going to be a charge and if the officer is guilty. And that's really, you know, not the way we normally do things. Normally we have police officers decide if there's going to be a charge and then somebody else deciding whether or not the person is guilty. So it really, you know, that's why I say the legislation is daft because it's just contrary to what we see in a free and democratic society to have the person who decides that there should be a charge also be the judge of whether or not that person is guilty. So it, it, and as well, um, you know, the, the hearing itself before the chief is it's sort of like you know something out of a Kafka novel like what's going on I'm, I'm making this complaint and I don't get any information it's just not the way justice is normally run normally people have a right to know you know what has what has happened they have a right to disclosure so I would like to see a police services board established that can deal with these complaints separate and apart from the chief of police who is also in a conflict patty because at the same time that the chief is imposing discipline he's supposed to be convincing the public that you know you can trust us like we we need your support you cannot effectively police a population if you don't have the support of that population a large part of policing involves getting the community behind you you need community support in order to be able to provide the services that police officers provide if there's no compliance by the population if the population doesn't believe in what you're doing then you can't effectively police unless you, you know, have a one-to-one ratio of police officers to population, and that's not what anybody wants. Fair enough. Uh, before we run out of time, can you give us a status update into the work you're doing with women who've come forward allege- alleging sexual assault at the hands of police? We're waiting for documents um, from the government. We're, we're waiting on those documents, and then we'll begin the process of discoveries.
We appreciate your time this morning, Lynn. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Lynn Moore, of course, uh, talking about the police complaints process in general. Uh, let's take a break. Bill's in the queue to talk about health care. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Uh, not too bad. Uh, about three weeks ago, uh, I had an uh, I tripped and had a fall. In 1989, I had a hip revision done. And uh, about three weeks ago, I tripped in my home and fell. And I was in bad shape for a while. Anyway, uh, long story short, went to Emerge. And I'll be 79 in two months. And went to Emerge at approximately 5 in, uh, p.m. in the afternoon. So I went through triage, and the nurse in triage uh, said to me, you know, you could have your hip busted up. Uh, I'm going to give you same priority as if you had a heart attack. I said, well, that's great, excellent, thank you. She said, because if I don't, you could be here 16, 18 hours or more. So eight and a half hours later, still sitting in a wheelchair, I finally... Uh, got in to emerge. The place was packed. There was people there waiting from 10 o'clock in the morning, left at 12 at night, uh, and went home. Just got so frustrated with it. Anyway, uh, and I must say, when I got in to emerge, I was treated well by nurses and doctors, but 2.30 in the morning, my wife and I got home. Uh, this, This is absolutely ridiculous and this virtual care that Osborne and the rest of them have drummed up this is nothing only a first because if I get talking say to a virtual care doctor and I'm injured or whatever first thing he or she is going to tell me is go to emerge your nearest emergency and things are not going to change it's still going to wait hours and hours and hours now she said the nurse said she's going to give me the same priorities if I had a heart attack well Nine hours later, I would have been dead. So, you know, I don't know where Mr. Osborne comes up with this stuff or, or, or nothing's going to change, Patty. And the people that do go to emerge and sit for hours and hours and hours on end know that things are not going to change. Let me put this out there for your thoughts. I'm pretty sure that in emergency rooms across the province and across the country, there are people sitting there occupying space, taking up time, adding to your wait time that maybe could have had their issue dealt with with a virtual care appointment. Consequently, maybe a little, little bit of freeing up the congestion in the emergency room. Do you think that's a possibility? In my situation... Not in yours, of course. You need a doctor up close and personal. Yeah. No, no question. Yeah. But, well, you know... Uh, I agree to some extent, but if anybody's seriously hurt or got serious problems, you're going to need emergency services, and virtual doctors are not going to be absolutely not going to be useful at all. Well, I, I think there's a, an agreement there is that every ill and ailment is not going to be appropriate to be dealt with virtually. 
It's not. Some issues and some minor ailments and some renewal of prescriptions and those types of things, maybe, just maybe, people can have it satisfied with a virtual, whether it be on an iPad or a telephone call. And for people who are living in really remote areas with minor ailments, might be very helpful to them versus getting in the car and driving who knows how long and how far to see the next closest healthcare clinic. So I'm still struggling about how virtual care is going to work. I know it's pretty busy, like even some of the established virtual care units Units, uh, organization in the province are already quite busy and they're so busy that they're arguing that there shouldn't even be a cap on visits. Now I would like to see similar to like 811. We have a percentage of calls to 811 where you're told go to the doctor. So I wonder what that percentage looks like on virtual care because at some point we will be paying twice for the same appointment. Well on October 28th I had while I was dealing with this injury of course I had I had a terrible flu. I didn't have COVID, but I had the flu. Really, really sick. I called my family doctor was off. We couldn't get a hold of anybody. Uh, so it was on a Friday. Uh, I, I forget. I think it was Friday. Anyway, I called eight one one and spoke with a nurse. And I said, "Look, if you can't prescribe antibiotics for me because I had it on the chest and I was really sick." Uh, I said, man, we're wasting each other's time. She said, no, I can't prescribe it, but uh, a practical nurse can. Uh, I said, okay, that'll be fine. She said, but I can't get you an appointment on the phone until November 3rd. I said, you're serious. She said, I'm serious. I said, I'll be dead by then. So there, there you go right there. Certainly, the system as its current state in this province and across the country is not working. We haven't had a real exploration of healthcare delivery in this country for a very, very long time, and things have changed. I think some of the work done with the Health Accord, if government's going to follow through with some of the recommendations, should improve the system, because one thing is uh, undebatable. If it was simply about spending money, we'd be in good shape, but unfortunately, we're not. No, and we sure. spend a ton of money. I mean, $4 billion for just over half a million people is not adding up in my mind. Well, and another thing, spending $22 million in two years uh, for God knows where. It could be talking to a doctor down in the States somewhere. No, they have to be in Canada, actually. Oh, it has to be. Okay. Yeah, they're in and Canada, and they're registered with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of this province and are members of the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association. Oh, okay. Yeah. But... And then again, uh, Dr. Young uh, apparently could have done this a lot cheaper and a lot. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know, Patty. Like sometimes I'm very concerned about the decisions they make in there, and it, it upsets me sometimes. But anyway, I can't dwell on that. Well, I hear your concern. I mean, I asked Minister Osborne that directly yesterday about where Medicuro's bid came up short insofar as checking all the boxes because Dr. Young says his bid was at $3.5 million versus Teladoc's at $11 million per year. We're told that uh, Dr. Young and his group will get a chance to sit down with the procurement people and find out where their bid was lacking. And hopefully at that time, we'll be able to understand exactly why a bid that was one-third the price was not selected. So we're going to keep looking for that info. Yes. Okay, that's uh, that, that, and and uh, I'd just like to reiterate before I close that that time when I was in Emerge, there were several people there that were not only young people. There was a lot of seniors there that 
our age and uh, my age, and they were there all day from 10 o'clock in the morning until 12 o'clock at night they decided they had enough and they just weren't getting in into emerge anytime soon and they left and went home that's not acceptable and and osborne needs to know this the people of newfoundland labrador especially seniors like me this is not acceptable patty they can find money they can find money for everything else but apparently they can't find money to fix this problem with uh, our health care here in newfoundland uh, I've told this story in the past. A buddy of mine had a, a need to get some stitches. He went over to the health sciences emergency room. I think, the, if I remember correctly, he was there for 12 hours for five stitches or six stitches. I mean, it's just yeah. amazing. Uh, Bill, yeah. I hope you're doing well, and I appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm getting there. Anyway, thank you, Patty. Anytime, sir. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Okay, we're nudging right up against the news. Uh, so Bill's in the queue, and it's interesting. You know, we had a conversation with Jen Shears about the sealing industry, and you look at the power and the lobby groups that represent other harvests of animals. So Bill must make a, I, well, what I think is going to be an interesting comparison between two different industries. Uh, news time, don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Bill, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I can start off. I lived in Alberta outside of Calgary uh, for about 30 years, and people said, oh, you're born in Newfoundland. You guys like clubbing seals. And I said, well, the ranchers uh, go and shoot coyotes. When they see a coyote, uh, a pack going after a calf that could turn into a $1,000 investment. I said, in both, way, both places, people are protecting their investment. I happened to go on a shrimp boat, and I was totally amazed at all the equipment on that boat. That thing was worth a couple million dollars, and you compare that to a rancher and a truck and some property and an ATV going out and checking their fence lines and you know doing that kind of work that doesn't compare anywhere financially to what a fisher person has in the industry. And uh, when people, we get a bad rap for uh, killing seals, but we don't, we don't juxtapose that with uh, how um, some rancher or a farmer is going to go and shoot prairie dogs or coyote pups because they're, they know what's going to happen when they grow up. Either a horse is going to fall in the hole and then they're going to have to shoot the horse, which could be anywhere from a $1,000 to $30,000 horse. And I think maybe if there were videos that juxtapose the things, something like, you know, you got cute little uh, coyote pups frolicking in the sun, then they grow up and then they develop into a pack and then they go take down a calf. Well, I don't, I think that something like that needs to be shown and then people can see everybody likes to eat beef and everybody likes to eat fish. And chicken. I mean, just look at the state of uh, poultry farms. I mean, well, I've seen some videos, both how a, a cow meets its maker, so to speak, and conditions at poultry farms. But you're right. People have been brainwashed by lies. I mean, some of the, the uh, propaganda that's used by, whether it be, uh, I can't remember that one group I'm thinking of off the top of my head, but they're talking about things that are decades old. You know, the scene of a white coat and red blood on white ice. Of course, for people to be like, how, how dare we allow this to happen? But that's not the reality anymore is simply not and it just proves the power of the lobby groups the beef industry the poultry industry the fishery they have a lot of clout whereas the seal hunting people who participate in the seal harvest have little to none 
Yes, that's right. And I think that they should actually put that out there. Maybe people would see it if they, you know, they could get an understanding. If, if there's bad news, it sells and people want to jump on it. And unfortunately, that's just the way the media works. It's how they make their money for their advertising. And somehow I think the angle needs to be changed and juxtapose what's really happening and let people see it. And I think then most people will get an idea. Hey, the sealing industry isn't that, you know, there's a reason. They need to show a picture of a seal eating the belly out of a a codfish and and, uh, leaving it alone to die. And the pictures of how big the – there's some picture that was in a, a book for it's a for kids in school it's a picture of a of a young fellow maybe five years old standing in a doorway and the codfish on either side of him are taller than him and then comparing that to where they are now you know i think more people should should be aware of how important the sealing industry uh is important to the uh to the longevity of the uh, cod and other fishing products here yeah, it's a real uphill battle, isn't it? Because people who have seen those videos that have been distributed far and wide, all in an effort to raise money, as uh, as all the time uh, along the wild, pardon me, that they're spreading their lies, it's hard to combat that. Because like most things in this world, if you're told this and you believe it right away, it's hard to have any factual inf- information seep into your mind to change your mind. So it's a real struggle, there's no doubt. Well, um, based on... Um the reason I decided to speak because a woman was speaking earlier and the EU's here, and maybe somebody could um, speak to them about that. Well, about the, issue, about the, about the uh, ranchers and the uh, coyotes and the other animals that people are killing to protect their livelihood. It's a fair ball, Bill. There's a lot of disconnects, and there's certainly not a level or an equitable playing field out there, no doubt. Well, thank you very much for letting me um, give out my idea to people. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the NDP member for Torngat Mountains. That's Leela Evans. Good morning, Leela. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. Yes, Patty, and I, uh, I'm a little late calling in because I, uh, I was attending the, uh, the Purple Ribbon Ceremony here at the Confederation Building, and uh quite emotional to listen to the stories and uh you know just just hearing the accounts from families and from from, from survivors who've been impacted by uh you know domestic uh, violence uh, partner related uh, abuse and uh it's in line with what we were talking about and I, I listened to the Minister of Justice talk about the policing transformation over working group and, um, you know, one of the biggest problems I think everybody in the province has with this working group is the lack of uh, community uh, representation. And I, I just wanted to, to weigh in on that, Patty, and uh, just talk a little bit about some of the comments the minister said while he was on your show, because I missed most of it, unfortunately. I was on a call. But from what I understood is the minister's rationale for keeping the working group within the department, and, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing his words, was so they could act quickly on the recommendations that come from this working group. But, Patty, a big part of this, now, this initiative is because community groups have been calling for police oversight, and now they're being excluded from from this working group to you know to be able to sit on sit in and 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 sort of work with the representatives from the police force, but to make sure that the community voice is there. 
you know, because when, when we look at things now, we're looking at things through a different lens. Like we look back now at the history of police um, behavior with a different lens and there's more accountability. And a lot of the things that have come into light now is quite unacceptable. And that's why there's a call for police oversight. And not having representation from the community groups, Patty, is really setting this up to be another failure. And go ahead. I was going to say, the minister, I asked that question of him directly about the structure, the makeup of the working group. And he says in an effort to reassure people about how this is going to work is that there will be extensive consultations with the voices who are not included in the formal structure of this four-person working group. But again, everybody knows that there's a vast difference between being consulted and actually being part of the group proper. So whether or not this ends up being an exercise of futility, I guess it all remains to be seen. But I think we're off to a bit of a rocky start with simply how it's, uh, uh, how it's formed. And, and you know... Consultation, if it's done properly, you know, is a is a good tool. But right now, just to have people who are involved in policing do this review, and I think the only other person that's not directly involved in policing is a career civil servant, and they're going to look at this through a different lens. And uh, you know, it it it's worrisome to to all of us, and it's, it's it's really a failure. Like it's like this is a missed opportunity. This is a missed opportunity to reach out to the community, to reassure the community that there's going to be changes, right? Policing transformation. Now, how can you transform the police when really the only voices that's going to be uh, on this working group are from the RCMP and from the uh, RNC and and the civil service? Right. So for us, and and you know, just just listening and 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 watching, you know, the chief superintendent Cahill from the RCMP and the RNC chief would say that they're confident with the public's trust in current policing in the province. Like for everybody out there who's who who saw that, I'm sure that uh, there was a there was a huge roar from the back of their mind, you know because there's so much information out there that has eroded police, uh, the, the, the trust of the public in policing. And, and that's where the biggest failure is. And, and, and the justice minister really, really has done a disservice to everybody because this is a lost opportunity and, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, and it, it may take time for this to become evident, and that's the last time. I, I you know, I, I attended the Purple Ribbon sermon money today, and you know, you hear about mothers, and you hear from brothers, and you hear from from family members who lost somebody to domestic violence. That's a huge thing. We also got the queer community out there that, for decades, have been abused and marginalized by by the police. You know, and uh, we, you know, we have Indigenous people, like the Highway of Tears. You know, that's not a figurative thing. Out west, there's a highway that from the north, from indigenous communities to the south, where a lot of indigenous women went missing. And the police just turned a, ba- a, a blind eye to it. You know, and so there's there's huge mistrust. You know, so so for us, is we, we got to start on the right foot and allowing, you know, our advocacy our, our working groups, our, our, our community leaders who, who know about this marginalization, who know about this victimization, who know about the, what it feels like to be betrayed and, and not have trust, they need to be able to sit on the working group and talk to people who are in policing and explain why 
that voice is important and why it's important to change the way we do policing. And that's why that working group is called Police Transformation Working Group, but it, it, it's, it's not going to happen without that participation. And, um, you know, and we, we see a history of failures to, to, to adequately consult before legislation comes into place, you know, where, where major changes happen without the consultation and government says, oh, we're going to go back and consult with them after. But, like, that, that's backwards. Anybody out there listening now, Patty, they know that's backwards. That's not effective. That that just falls into the old phrase: they're putting the horse, they're putting the cart before the horse, right? And 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 like you know, I'm I'm not politicking here. Is that we really need change? We need to restore public confidence, and like we we you know, and and also we also earn earn we owe that to. Our RCMP officers and our RNC officers are out there, you know, because they're a lot, you know, the majority of them are doing the best that they can to help uh, to, to to be allies and, and, and you know, to, to uh, uphold the law. And with the lack of trust, they're also, they're also uh, being harmed as well uh, because, you know, uh, it, 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 it's one it's one big like I said you know this this is one big scenario here that's playing out again that's unfolding and what's going to happen is um, you know people are not going to have the confidence restored and you know it's going to take a while for this to, to play out and it's going to be last time so this this government and this minister has to really start making sure that when things are um, being put in place to make major changes that the right voices are there that can really, really make sure that the changes unfolding are the right ones, and especially for the justice system. Leela, I appreciate making time. Would you like to say anything else before they send me off to the break? No, Patty. Uh, like I said, I, I think this this minister needs to reevaluate this working group, and I think he needs to listen to our community leaders and uh, the, the advocates there and make sure that they have a voice at this working group. Thanks for this, Leela. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Leela Evans, the yeah. NDP member for Torgat Mountains. Final break of the morning. When we come back, Reg is in the queue to talk about the Prime Minister's visit to the city today and tomorrow. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Reg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing, my son? You Grant. still on top of hell for a while? Still there. How about you? <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Yes, right up there. Anyway, Patty, I see Santa Claus is coming to town. Uh, Trudeau's coming to town. I see uh, they're going to have a few dignitaries. I just got a little bit of the news last night from the European Union. Uh, what's this all about, Patty? Can you fill me in? I'm a little bit stupid on this uh, department, but uh, you can maybe help me out. I assume it's got a little bit to do with our wind power. Am I right? Around. Yeah, clean energy is absolutely on the agenda. This is the 19th Canada-EU summit. So the Prime Minister is in town, as you mentioned. The President of the European Council, uh, Charles Michel, is here. The President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is also here. There's a bunch of stuff on the agenda, as usual, when these big summits take place. But absolutely, clean energy is on it. They're talking about innovation and technology. Some things are just, you know, very vague references. Job creation, climate change, biodiversity, the like. But a lot of this is going to be about trade and clean energy for sure. Yeah, no doubt. You know, Patty, all good stuff. Now, my question, uh, Patty, I'm just curious. Now, listen, is there, I assume our, our Premier, Premier Fury is going to be present. 
And uh, I think uh, maybe Honourable uh, Elvis Loveless should have been invited. I mean, is anybody going to have the clout, Patty, or any guts to, uh, after the after meetings or whatever, to maybe take a brief a few minutes and go in the back room and what have you and, and bring to the attention of those people about our seal? I mean, well, do you ever think this is going to be brought up or it's not the proper time or, or what? Well, it's always the proper time, I assume, but when we're talking trade, there's a place for that conversation, I would assume. Also, if biodiversity is on the agenda with which it is. I think SEAL could fall into that portion of the conversation as well. Will it be brought forward? I don't think we know. It's not on the formal agenda. I don't know what role the Premier or anyone else from the provincial government is going to play here, but obviously we're going to play some sort of role because if we're talking clean energy, then the province has already signed an MOU for clean energy and export. Whether or not it's going to work or people think it's a good idea is beside the point. But we're already involved. <clears throat> so I can't imagine how we'd be excluded. <laughs> Exactly. No, it's just curious, you know, Patty. I, personally, uh, I think it should be somebody should bring it to their attention. And, and may, you know, they're going to walk away eventually, you know, Patty, with some big dollars out of this. I mean, it's all about, I don't know if it's a politi- more or less a political issue or it's all about clean energy or whatever, but uh, somebody's going to walk away with a, f- a few dollars after all this is said and done. So maybe they should, before they leave, go down to Vogue, uh, for a year and buy one of the big sea of skin uh, uh, purses to put the money in and uh, and everybody be happy you know Patty but anyway listen that's all I got to say today yeah I don't know if any money changes hands but what I, I do know is when we do negotiations say for instance on trade when we the country signed on to the uh, CETA agreement it came with some give and take we gave up yeah. minimum processing requirements in the fishery harvest uh, pardon me the processing sector in an effort to see tariffs removed on the product being exported to Europe so yeah. there's always give and take is there a place for give and take and negotiations regarding the export of green hydrogen? Maybe. Why not? I mean, we've done it everywhere else. I mean, the fishery's been used as a diplomatic trading tool, so why not seals? I understand where people are coming from here, and maybe, just maybe, there's a a place for it at this particular summit, as they like to call it. Uh, Reg, anything else this morning, sir? No, I just wanted to say, because it seems like to me, you know, Patty, uh, everybody in the provincial and the federal department is pretty tight-lipped when it comes to the seal. You mentioned the seal and nobody wants to, to give you an answer. But anyway, that's my story and I'm second to it. And you have a good day and keep up the good work as usual. And we're sure we'll talk again. Thanks, Reg. Have a nice day. Take care, buddy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, uh, likely final word this morning goes to line number three. Ruby, you're on the air. Oh, hi. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm fine. Good. Um, I don't know if you know anything like we're... Uh, we're well, my, my sister and her husband, and they don't have a lot of money. Uh, I'm trying to arrange now, because my sister's a little bit sick now, uh, trying to arrange now to get a will done. But these will kits, do you don't know if they're illegal or, or... They are, yeah. They're legit, uh, and they're legally enforceable. I mean, even a handwritten will is enforceable in this country. So that, you know, if you have a very fundamental issues and no bill complexities with taxation and or having to set up trust accounts for uh, young people for an inheritance, because in many provinces you can't take the cash until you're 18. So if you have some complicated things, you probably should see a lawyer. But if you have pretty fundamental affairs that you want to put in order, those, le- those online kits are absolutely enforceable. Okay, that's what I want to check out because there's so much uh, scams on the go and everything. So, 
but uh, someone told me I can get them down at Staples. You can. Some of them are really cheap. I mean, you can get into it for, you know, like $20, $30 for some of these online kits. There's a website that I think is worthwhile checking out. It has a big question and answer uh, component to it, and I think it's called legalwills.ca. So they'll have a whole bunch of things about it, enforceability, legality, legitimacy, uh, recommendations if you have complicated affairs. So check that out as well. But those kits that are available, they are legally enforceable. Okay, that's what I want to check out then. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Ruby. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. So last time I ever read anything about that is there's about half of Canadians don't have a last will and testament. And, you know, if you have very fundamental affairs that you need to put in order, you can just uh, write a handwritten will. You know, the, maybe you want to get it notarized by a public notary or what have you. But those kits, at the very least, are a good start. You know, because all of the confusion that comes along when people pass away without a will, trying to deal with the different scenarios as set out by law, and it can be very complicated and it can absolutely tear families apart. I mean, you've heard stories very likely the same as I have. You know, an unexpected death and there's no will in place and there are some assets that have to be divvied up, it can be a really messy situation. So about half of the country, if, as, if I remember correctly, uh, does not have a will. You can indeed, if you complete one of those online type of kits, I think there's also the availability for a quick review from a lawyer. So that's vastly different than paying a lawyer to craft the entirety of your will. So a review is also uh, an option. But yeah, if that's the uh, route you want to take, there are indeed ways for those low cost and or there's some free uh, out there as well, including the old handwritten will. So yeah, it's an option for sure. All right, uh, let's check in on the Twitter box before we run out of time. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, okay, we're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. And, of course, with so many different moving parts, and the stories needn't be all political, there's always an opportunity to talk societal issues and cultural issues. And, yes, a bit of good news is already good for the heart. It'd be good for me, welcomed by me, and I would imagine most of the people tuned in the program. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the show, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.